Steve and I review Gatecrash for Vintage on episode 21 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 21 of So Many Insane Plays, our Vintage Gate Crash review. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menedian. Hi, folks. As we go through the show, if you have any comments or questions, please tweet us at Many Insane Plays on Twitter or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. We have some announcements for this week's episode. Steve, your History of Vintage is coming out. Why don't you talk about that? So chapters three and four, uh, 1995 and 1996, have just been published. Uh, I highly encourage folks to go check it out. It's really sweet. There's a lot of stuff going on. You'll see a bunch of deck lists from 1995 and 1996 that have never been published anywhere. I interviewed a bunch of old players like Sean O'Brien, Jack Stanton, Mark Chalice. Those names should be familiar. Many of them were, were like pros in the mid-90s. Um, and got really great stuff. So, for example, one of the decks in there, Kevin, you probably will never have seen this before, the deck that got Fast Bond restricted. There's only one card restricted, but the only card that was restricted in 96 that stayed restricted in 96 was Fast Bond, and it was restricted because of, do you know what card? No. Storm Cauldron out of Alliances. Cool. I remember Storm Cauldron very well, and I remember some combo decks at the time. I didn't realize it was the impetus for Fast Bond, though. Neither did I. I thought that it would it was something else, but it, it happened to be, and Sean O'Brien was able to ship me a sweet deck, and uh, and so you'll see that. The weird thing is, despite 1996, the summer of 96, being so dominated by Necropotence, there's no historical Necropotence deck from 96 I was able to point to from Vintage, because all the Necro decks were standard, were, developed, were posted later, like from Extended. So if you actually go back and try and dig up a Vintage, a Type 1 Necro deck, it's attributable to a person in a particular tournament. You'll have a terrible time doing so from 96. So I was actually able to contact some players from 96 that I used to play with. And they, they gave me uh, their decks. So I was able to find two decks, one of the more standard mono black ones, and then one of the very, very cool multicolor ones. So people want to check out my article, they'll see that. And they'll, of course, see from 1995 the whole history of Brian Weissman's development of the deck, all that. It's all there. It's great stuff. It's actually amazing how well this stuff has come together. And the, the other thing is you'll find the decks that won both the 1995 and 1996 Type 1 championships, which were separate. The 1996 Type 1 championship was held at Pro Tour Dallas in December of 96. And uh, that's a really interesting deck. I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, really cool things there. That is such awesome formative history for this format. It's incredible. That's cool. The next chapter will be 1997 and it should be coming out in February. And it's really cool because it's the, with, um, with visions, you get prosperity. And so for the first time, the mana crypt decks with mana, four mana crypt, four mana vault and four Hercules recall actually get an outlet for all of that. Because before prosperity, there's no real outlet for all that mana, you know, so the, and, and the, there was a, um, in 1996, in early 96, there was an errata on mana crypt that allowed you to tap it. I think it was 96 
metrics, you'll see it in my article, that allowed you to tap it and turn it off in the upkeep so that you wouldn't have to flip a coin. It had such good synergy with Mana Vault over the course of a couple of turns. You could use them all and then not have any drawback for either of them on the next turn. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. And that, that's exactly where that synergy came from. And then you put Herpel's Recall in the mix and you've got explosive mana acceleration. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until Prosperity that came out in Visions. Prosperity is actually like the most important card in Visions though at the time, even though Vamp Tutor is in there, because it's, it finally gives you an outlet for that. And so you, what you do is you use Prosperity and Black Vise. And um, Ole Rade won the very first Magic Invitational, beating Mike Long in the final with that combo deck over Mike Long, who was playing the deck, Keeper. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, and, so th- and then you see an explosion of that deck in early 97. And it's really cool. Uh, you'll, you'll find all these awesome Prosperity decks. You'll find a Pat Chapin deck. That, that won't be out till February. But um, what's really cool is that Ole Rade, get this, all the, the people playing the deck switched to the Abyss. And Ole Rade had... Uh, under the rules of the Invitational had to have one of each, uh, five of each cards from each of the expansion. Mm-hmm. So most of them went to the sideboard, but he put a snake basket in there. <laughs> and the snake basket this savagely. And so he, he won most of the games in the, the five set games in the finals of the Invitational with snake basket. That's incredible. Mike Long, Mike Long couldn't do anything about it. He just, you know, you play it with all that mana acceleration. He generates ten snakes, snakes. You know, what do you do? And those keeper decks that are, yeah, the deck, which so much before that was reliant on moat transitioned over to the abyss and couldn't deal with snakes echoes of empty the warrens today exactly it really does it, it's the exact same concept instead of black black vise they use you know so they would use black vise just like we use tendrils so the prosperity draw your opponent a million cards and then you just died to black vise um he, it actually his only Rade's deck also used three lions out diamonds not four just three which is kind of weird huh. but uh, it's still i think the multicolor ones used three to four and they used it obviously it accelerated out it was great with prosperity and draw sevens and it obviously is pretty good with uh, Snake Basket as well. Now, help me out here. Was that during the period of Oddity when you could announce a spell and pay for its cost with Lion's Eye Diamond? No, that, was, that wasn't yet. That was I think before that. Comes that. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't come up to that yet. I think that comes in like 98 or late 97. I'm still only halfway through 97. Okay. Yeah. We'll get to that. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. Yes, I remember that that period fondly. That time, 96, 97, 98, was when I was becoming aware of Vintage, starting to play it and studying the decks. And so I'm very nostalgic for that time. Well, let me just actually spoil a little something else, because it's really cool. Now, I won't spoil much of 95. 95 has really interesting stuff, a lot of deck lists that I was able to dig up. But 96, when Necro becomes Ascendant, and Necro, part of Necro's Ascendance is fighting the deck, you'll find various iterations of the deck. So Brian Weissman changed his build to help fight Necropotence. Obviously, Disrupting Scepter is much worse when your opponent has Necropotence, right? Mm-hmm. And so he started. He switched um, from Sarah Angel to Fireball better combat necropotence and so he he actually got 39th place at pro tour dallas type one championship which is one one of the events of pro tour dallas um and one of the reasons he he didn't do very well is because a brand new deck emerged so the the metagame was primarily defined by the deck and the necro decks Mm -hmm. and to some extent land destruction decks that you'll see in my new deck that emerged was called variously west coast or new york zoo um and they both emerged at the same time and there were these decks that have four black vies four curd ape you know so look some some blue spells a lot of burn and the reason they did so well is because black vies was so good against necropotence and black vies was so good against the deck 
And then in in the, the oh, and because of Mirage, you got in alliances, you got Dwarven Miner and Gorilla Shaman, which is really good against both the deck and the Mana Crypt decks. So Zoo was like perfectly positioned in the metagame to own the top decks. And so it actually got all four deck lists in the top eight, top all four top four decks in the top eight of the uh, pro, of the Type 1 Championship of 1996. Wow, incredible. Which, of course, allowed Prosperity decks to dominate when they were printed, in when Prosperity was printed, when Visions came out in February of 97. So you can see these very clear metagame shifts, Necropotence emerging, then Zoo emerging to combat Necropotence, then Prosperity to own them all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember that period, especially with four mana crypts as a very broken time period. I unfortunately quit right when Alliances came out, so I didn't get to, right after Alliances, so I didn't get to enjoy the fun of the four mana crypt period that was dominated prosperity. But I'm getting to live it vicariously soon, and I'm going to play some of these decks um, in real life soon. Some of my uh, readers have said they're going to build them and play them with me, so I'm looking forward to that. Cool. We have some upcoming tournaments to pitch here. We've got two coming up in Ohio. Team Serious Open on February 9 in Sandusky and the St. Patrick's Day Vintage on March 17 in Comic Town in Columbus. Should be a good time. We always like to promote those tournaments in Ohio. We know those guys all very well, and they're a good crowd. Steve, you don't have an upcoming Vacaville tournament because you recently played in one. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I've had the privilege to play in two tournaments, uh, both across the country in the last couple weeks. At the end of December, I played in the Team Serious Open and won that with my Burning Long deck. And then I got to uh, play this past weekend in Vacaville, California, 3,000 miles away. (laughs) And I got first place at that tournament, too. (laughs) Also with Burning Long? Also with Burning Long. And in both tournaments, there were two uh, Burning Longs in the top four. Both, by the way, piloted by by guys named Ryan. Weird. Yeah, Ryan Romanick in Columbus and Ryan Reynolds in, in Bakerville. Um, and I, I, I faced, I played now three Burning Long Mirrors in tournaments, including against David Ochoa. I haven't lost a game, despite losing the die rolls in all of them. Wow, very interesting. The deck is just so awesome and so much fun to play, and everyone who plays it seems to have a really good time. It's great to see it doing so well. You know, it's actually frustrating because at the end of, we podcasted our, recorded our year in review just before a slew of Burning Long top eights appeared. Um, so, Obviously, the, the very last tournament one of the calendar year, I won with Burning Long, and then there was two European tournaments. One was, I think, I'll look it up. But one was a sixty-some player tournament in Germany that was won by Burning Long, and there was a couple of other high place finishes. And then also recently, Lou Christopher and David Williams uh, split first and second place this past weekend in Las Vegas with my deck as well. So it's it's doing really well all over the place. We've got more to talk about with regard to Burning Wish relative to our predictions from a few podcasts ago about how many performances it would put out. But it's clearly doing very well, and, well, we're going to get to the actual numbers, but it's doing better than even we predicted, so... I think one of the keys to it is my most recent innovation, not just the Laboratory Maniac, but the fact that I, I included so many ancient tombs. So my original list had two ancient tombs, but I've gone up to three or four. And I think that those ancient tomb and the emphasis on Hercules and Oath really gives it a very strong workshop matchup. I haven't lost a workshops yet since I have gone that, that route tournament, including beating Anthony Michaels in the finals of the Team Serious Open. And then he went on last weekend, by the way, to win a 30-player tournament in Pennsylvania with the same deck. So It seems to me that this time around, Long Burning Wish Long is getting more recognition and more support from the player base than it did 
the first time it got uh, Burning Wish restricted. Absolutely. I mean, but you know, um, we didn't. Uh, it takes time for people to learn how to play this deck, and it's a very complicated deck. You know, it's interesting. I got to watch David Ochoa play it, who is probably one of the best technical players in the world, right? And I mean, I played on the Invitational with many of the best players, and I the whole time I watched him, there were only three plays I disagreed with him on. Mm-hmm. One of them was just a, uh, a simple mistake, probably unfamiliarity with the card. You know, just a, a mistake, a blunder in my match. One of them, but the other two were really subtle, sophisticated plays. One was he 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 could, had the opportunity to he had Jar and Gristlebrand in play and Necro, and he had been Necroing. And the play I would have done would have been to play Ponder, respond with Hercules Recall, and then respond by breaking the Jar. Sorry, yeah, by breaking the Jar, so that I so that he has all these things stacked, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't do. I think my play I think is a slightly slightly better than the play he made, which was just to activate Gristlebrand, um, because my play he gets deeper in. So he the way the stack would resolve is he would the Jar would resolve, he would draw seven, then the Hercules Recall would return all the artifacts in his in play to his hand, and then he would then the Ponder would resolve and he, you know keep Ponder on the stack and respond with the other instance or activating Gristlebrand, so he gets even deeper into his deck. Right. You know. Right. But he, I don't think he saw that play, and we talked about it a little bit afterwards, and he said he, he actually thought my play was better. And then the second thing is, I don't think he was actually aggressive enough with Necro in one of the games. I think that you know it's interesting to watch other people play my deck. I've watched another kid play the, the deck in, in the tournament who actually every single thing he did was wrong. <laughs> I thought, and I, I'm not being hyperbolic, every land drop he made was wrong. Every sequenced mox was wrong. He used Necropotence. The way he played it, the when he played it, the mana he used was wrong. The, car, the amount of cards he's he set aside to draw was wrong, and the cards he discarded to it were wrong. Wow. The deck is so decision-intensive. I mean, so, for example, you know, one very simple thing. Like, if your opening hand has Gemstone Mine, Orchard, or City of Brass, which land do you play? I think most inexperienced long players probably would play the Gemstone Mine. That's not that's not usually correct. You almost always lead with the Orchard or City. It just depends on what the situation is, but probably the City. Mm-hmm. So, And I also think that people just are not nearly as aggressive, but I don't really want to share more tips or tactics about it. I'll just let people read the primers and turn reports and see what see what they think. Anyway, <laughs> I've had a blast playing it and I'm glad that it's doing well and I'm glad I finally be able to play I am fi- glad I finally have been able to have a chance to play it in tournaments, let alone, you know, had such success. It seems like it's a staple of the metagame at this point and people need to respect it and plan for it. Shh. Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, with that, I think we should get into our results from our last set review at Return to Ravnica, which also includes our predictions for Burning Wish. How's that? So that sounds good. When we did our last set review, I remember you saying how excited you were about these results. I'm actually more excited, I think, to find out how we did. Well, I love this, and I hope our listeners understand that this is, this is a newfound tradition for us where we're going to go back and evaluate our picks hold ourselves accountable for exactly what we predicted for each card. And so we're going to go relatively quickly, though, card by card in terms of our predictions last time and how they panned out. Well, we actually did that at uh, one of our last, didn't we? Oh, yes. This is not the first time we're doing it. It's just a tradition now. And we're doing it in more detail this time. Yes. I have some more stats here that should ease ease our conversation. We're starting with Jace, Architect of Thought. We talked a lot about what it takes for a Planeswalker to be playable. Steve, you predicted one appearance, and I predicted none. The actual appearances as of today was one. So you, today, being, today being January 23rd, 23rd, yes. As of now, one appearance in the top eight for Jace, Architect of Thought. You called it right on. 
and there my non-zero my non-zero number was that? <laughs> your non-zero was better than my zero yes so that's a pretty good win for you the deck that it appeared in was interestingly a deck that featured oath of druids it was a basically a golden gun list that had one jace architect of thought in it it also had one tesseret the seeker so very interesting that that particular player nicola dini chose to eschew jace the mind sculptor who's just especially good in oath at extra brainstorms that was in november we haven't seen a performance of the architect since i don't expect to see any more either i maintain my zero <laughs> yeah i mean i just uh, i remember my view i was pointing out that it's not strictly inferior because it can actually generate faster card advantage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you it's one ability twice in a row interesting moving on goblin electromancer wait so steven one oh so far oh yeah <laughs> all right goblin electromancer you predicted two i predicted one the actual has been zero so I which that remind me what that does. That's the one that uh, reduces the mana cost of instance the the red blue guy. Yeah, I remember now. I, I thought that, that that card might see play in Europe because they have such a fondness for intuition AK. But okay. <laughs> so and I wanted to talk to you about this because we haven't compared our scores before now. But um, do you consider a a one versus two a win for me on that one? Given that there were zero. <laughs> It's. I think it is. I would say it's technically a win, but we both pretty much lost in that we were predicted more than zero. <laughs> well, we were. I mean, we were so close to the right answer. I mean, yeah. Is it really? Well, I'd say on my list so far, I've just given credit for the win to whoever was closest to the number. I think that's the way we should do. it. Okay, that's fair. So that that one goes in my column, but I don't love it. The next one is judges familiar which is a very similar story to Goblin Electromancer. You predicted three appearances. I predicted two. The actual was zero. Wow. Yeah. And so it turns out this and another card coming up, Dryad Militant, just were not embraced in aggro decks as much as we expected them to be. Okay. I hold out hope that in, in the future, maybe we still might see some judges' familiar action because it's a very efficient card and the comparison to Cursed Catcher is apt, but not yet. Hasn't happened. Okay. Next up, Dreadbore. You and I both predicted zero. There was actually one copy in a sideboard. I'm op- Remind me what Dreadbore is again. <laughs> that is the red-black sorcery, destroy target creature or planeswalker. And it showed wow. up in a Grixis control deck in where did, in uh, November. It showed up. So, so Theo has one point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Inside joke. Yeah, okay. yeah. So that one goes to neither of us. We both had the same wrong expectation. And the same story goes for Gutter Snipe. Gutter Snipe, if you'll remember, is the goblin who's kind of like a storm spell with legs. He damages his opponent. We both predicted zero, and there was one appearance. Interestingly, it was a four of in a storm combo deck, and that happened in October. This was a gush-based storm combo deck that actually featured four lightning bolts, two incinerates, and one fire ice. So it was. So that was in a ten-player tournament. <laughs> it was heavily focused on damage. Yes, it was a small tournament. So, again, neither of us really get credit for that one, but we weren't very far off the mark. If you could deal in half points here, I think we'd have half points. So so far of the five cards we've mentioned, only two of them have, uh, three of them have actually seen in a top eight appearance. Right, one appearance each. Okay. So for keeping score, that's two wins for me and one for you, but they're all pretty minor at this point. The next okay. one, though, I'm pretty proud of. Is it Charm? You predicted four. I predicted ten. The actual has been seven. Now, 
the difference between our distance there is obviously only four versus three, so I get the edge in terms of the math. But more importantly, though, I think I like to take credit for this one because I really expected this card to be embraced and be popular. And I think that seven appearances really does tell that story. I was a little, I overshot the mark a little bit, but seven appearances is a healthy card from Return to Ravnica. I don't think that you can count that as a win because we were equally far apart, three on both counts. Yeah, and and I know what you're saying, and you're you're not wrong about that one, but I feel like my case for this card was more was more accurate than your case for it. I expected this card to be embraced in multiple archetypes and and in several different ways, and I think that seven appearances really demonstrates that more than than what you predicted with four. You were predicting more niche play, I think. That doesn't matter. I mean, we're, we're not evaluating the quality. You know, we're evaluating the numbers. I, know. I said four, I said ten, it was seven. It's a push. Okay, all right. It's a tie. Yeah, you might not feel that way about some of the other ones coming up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> For example, Dryad Militant. You said 13, I said 15, the actual was 3. Wow. That was one of our top cards in the set. It was, and the simple fact is is that it showed up in just a couple of green-white aggro decks, but mm-hmm. and not even four copies. That's the thing. So there was one deck that actually had one copy for some reason. Mm. But otherwise, green-white aggro just is basically not a thing lately. There were a couple of think, appearances of that deck, and most of them didn't play Dryad Militant. Yeah, I think it just goes to show that like those aggro decks, the beatdown decks, while they might be, more, they would be more viable if the format had was had, was larger. I think it's just they're very, very tiny numbers of top eight. Yeah, and so we just need to be as much as we think these cards are good, we just need to be more conservative when evaluating. And evaluating them. It, so you were I, I was technically right because I had the under, but I don't I don't feel great about that either. But I will take <laughs> I will take the score. Alright, fair enough. Yes, and at the time we were evaluating that, the new deck that Brian DeMars had relatively recently come out with, which was a Bant Agro control deck using Green Sun Zenith, was still at the top of our mind. I remember us referring to it a number yeah. of times in that evaluation. That deck has not evolved into a, a format staple by any stretch. So next up, though, we have a very interesting case and probably the highlight of our of our review. Rest in peace. <clears throat> you predicted 18. I predicted 25. The actual was 30. Wow. Yeah, so rest in peace made a big splash, almost entirely in the sideboard, mind you, all but a few of those what 30 appearances. What, what's that? What kind of decks? Well, that's the thing, is it, it, as a sideboard card, it appeared in a number of different archetypes, but really... Those are just the decks that ha- contain white. So it's mostly control decks, mostly in Bomberman. And, you said Bomberman and what else? And some other multicolor control decks. With so many appearances, I didn't go through and review absolutely every one of them. I think one of the reasons I kept I undercounted it or didn't predict more is because I was trying to think what decks have white. Also Noble Fish, which I should have said. Uh, 30 appearances. Wow. Exactly. That's, it also goes to show you how much people hate Dredge. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And the couple of main deck appearances that I saw were also accompanied by one main deck, Helm of Obedience, and Esper Control decks, and Bomberman variants. Nice. Yeah. So there's some people hedging on that combo in, in game one as well. Interesting. So this one goes to me. I was under much less than you were. I was under by five, and you were under by 12, so... I get the edge on that. You got it. So what's our count so far? Steve has one, two. Kevin has one, two, three at the moment. Okay. So I'm up by one at the moment. 
Next up, Epic Experiment. Not really much to say here. Zero, zero, zero across the board. Yeah, we thought that car was garbage and, and it's, will not. Yeah. Yep. Next up, though, is one that I missed the boat on, Vandal Blast. You predicted zero. I predicted three. The actual was zero. I have to admit that I am still a little surprised that this was not greater than zero. I really thought that certain people would see the attractiveness of paying five mana for an ingot chewer and extrapolate that to paying five mana for a Vandal Blast. And I'm just genuinely surprised that no one even made top eight somewhere with some of these in their sideboard. With other cards like Dreadbore and Gutter Snipe and Jace Architect of Thought making top eights, I'm just, if I had to rank these in order of likelihood, I would have put Vandal Blast above all of those in terms of their likelihood of just being in someone's sideboard. So why do you think you're wrong? I I really don't know. I really think that people look at it, they must have looked at it and said, I just want Ingot Chewer over this every time. I think, I think that's it. Yeah. Still, when you, when you compare it again to cards like Dreadbore and Jace Architect of Thought, I just still remain surprised that no one took the plunge and tried it and made a top eight with them in their sideboard. It's still a perfectly relevant card in lots of situations. But hey, we'll see. Time will tell if it ever sees any play. Yep. Well, so we're ti- all tied up now, right? Three, three. That's right. Next okay. up, Deathrite Shaman. Now, this one. This is- was a card I was excited about for a long. I mean, I I kind of said some really positive things about this. Yes, you did. Despite the fact that you and a lot of people bashed it, people on Twitter, all over the place. I am just dumbfounded by how much this card has stood out, and I think a lot of the magic community across ultimately all constructed formats are kind of yep. in a similar boat. Most and I'm not surprised. I'm really not surprised. I'm not surprised. I mean, I listened in our last podcast why I thought it was good. Yeah. The only reason I predicted one is because you predicted zero. <laughs> if you had predicted more, I would have predicted more than you. Ah, playing the game, playing the game. I see. Well, the actual appearances was five. And those are mostly in, there's one of two kinds of decks. There's bug fish type decks and there's bug control type decks or maybe Grixis control with green splash, that kind of thing. And really it's just been inserted, I think, as a role player. Extra, a little bit of extra hate against dredge, a little bit of extra acceleration, just trading yep. on all the things it does a little bit good. Yep. It seems to me like it's here to stay as a role player. The performances of these decks demonstrate that it has a place. Yep. Next up is the big loser for all of us, and I, I just can't explain it. Abrupt Decay. You and I both predicted zero. Actual appearances, 19. Woo! Now, let me talk about what this 19 really looks like. There's a just a rash of Italian tournaments that featured Abrupt Decays in the sideboard, mostly out of five-color control decks, keeper decks, that were running a couple of Abrupt Decays, either main and side, and Swords to Plowshares and Lightning Bolts to complete the five-colorness of them. There was just a spate of performances of top eight placements by that deck in October, November, December. The second most common appearance is by what we would have expected, which would be a Bugfish-style deck. There's actually 26 results if you look it up in Morphling.d. A number of those decks have some in the main and some in the side, though, so I had to do some investigative research there to tease those out and count them as only one appearance. But Abrupt Decay has been very popular. Like I said, there was a spate of performances that were mostly October and November. There have been a couple since. I have a feeling... It'll be a role player for a while, but I think that it won't be to the tune of 19 every couple of months. I think that there was a rash of excitement about it, and it may have died down a bit. I really don't know why many of those Italian players adopted it in their keeper decks. It still seems to me like all it's doing is killing 
Bobs and Snapcaster Mages, but again, I don't know what decks those decks are beating that aren't making top eight in their metagame, so maybe it's keeping things like Tarmogoy for something else in check. I really can't say. That's really weird to me. I mean, because it's so bad against workshops. <laughs> It's just hard for me to fathom. It's bad against workshops. It's also bad against other Bob Jace decks. Yes, it's an uncounterable way to kill their Bobs, but I would so much rather have Lightning Bolt in those matchups. And it's yeah. and it's dead against Dredge, just to, I mean, more so than Lightning Bolt is even. The only thing I can think of is that there's a lot of Tarmogoyfs that aren't making top eight in those environments because of these Keeper decks, or there's a lot of Oath players that are being held in check by these uncounterable removals on their oath. That's the only thing I can think of. I would be very curious to see if Abrupt Decay continues to perform, whether it's sort of like an anomaly. I, don't I, think, it's mostly, I think it's partially an anomaly. I expect far fewer performances per top eight for the next several months. I'd like to revisit this issue in a couple of months and see where the recent results are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm truly surprised by that. I mean, even, even more so than the, I think, what are we really with? We really whiffed on Dryad Militant. But there were- I said 13 and they were 3. I'm not really shocked by that, but I am shocked by saying 0 Abrupt Decay, a card I thought was just unplayable in the metagame to 19. That's, that's a pretty big number. I agree. It's, it's really surprising. We'll see how it goes from here. Of all things, I would expect Dryad Militant to see some more performances than the 3 in the long run. And I expect things like Deathrite Shaman, which we missed, but I ex- understandably what's going on, I expect to see them more. I expect to see Abrupt Decay much less. Yeah. Also, Abrupt Decay, well, it might have a role to play against Burning Long with Main Deck Oath, but it's such a slow answer to that and so easily disrupted, and it doesn't trade yeah, on its power, which seems, is on counterability. Yeah, that seems really bad. Yeah, but so any case. I just... I, I just can't make a case for that card, not to the degree that I mean, I mean, Burning Oath doesn't even have counter magic, so I understand what, what the deal <laughs> you're is. Right, you're, mu- you're much better off with Nature's Claim. Okay, okay, moving on. Detention Sphere is another humorous case. We both predicted zero, and there was one in one sideboard in a really odd four-color fish deck that had a 15-card singleton sideboard. So, okay. a very unusual case, what? but neither of us <laughs> gets credit for that one. Treasured find, Steve, this is a win for you. You predicted zero, and the actual was zero. I predicted one because, like Vandal Blast, I expected somebody would come up with something for this card and give it a try as a three or four of, and it didn't happen. So that's a win for you. Okay. Nif Magus Elemental, similar case. You predicted one, I predicted zero, and there was one appearance. <laughs> <laughs> There's lots of one zero ones here, and you won two-thirds of those, so, so that's wow. adding your stats here. Niv Magus Elemental, interestingly, made a big splash in Modern when it became legal. There was a deck for one, I believe it was a GP, but I don't remember which one. There was a deck that I think Brad Nelson and Jerry Thompson were very excited about killing with Infect and Storm, and I don't think it's done anything since then. Next up is one of the zero ones that I actually won, which is Rakdos Charm. You predicted zero, I predicted one, there was one. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm a little bit surprised. We'll see how this card goes over time. This is one of those ones more so than Abrupt Decay that I would expect to see every now and then in someone's sideboard as a role player. Slitherhead doesn't bear much discussion. Zero, zero, zero across the board. That's a tie. And your biggest win, I think, in our results set here is Burning Wish. You predicted 11 appearances. I predicted six. The actual is a fuzzy number because some recent results haven't been reported. 14 as of what's on paper today, but as you just described earlier in the show, there are a couple of top eights that aren't on Morphling.D from this time period yet. So the real total is at least 16. 
So I was very close, though. You were very close, and you definitely predicted its popularity better than I did. You were, yeah, you were were pretty far. I was a little more cagey from a historical perspective, and in my defense, how many of the numbers here are you personally, and how many of them are people playing (laughs) your list from your articles? Well, of the fourteen, only one in this number. Only one is me. But uh, sixteen, two but are you? Yeah, if there are sixteen, then two are me. <laughs> anyway, I'm being humorous here. I, I <laughs> knew that the deck would be popular, and I knew you would be popularizing it. But I just underestimated how quickly it would catch on, and to what degree. This is, I think. It's, well, you know, I thought it would quick on, turn on, uh, catch on quicker. It took two months. It wasn't until mid December, right? The deck started performing, right. So people started playing it. It's going to probably be longer before it penetrates all the other areas. I think it'll continue to pick up speed, though. I think it'll show more performances over time. I think so today, too. especially when you're putting two people in a top eight on a repeated yes. basis in the last couple of months. Yeah, as long as is the key is people need to learn how to play it. It's incre- the way I described it is that it's a deck with a very high ceiling, but also an extremely low floor. So like you think of like a deck with dredge, it's really hard to screw up dredge. Like you don't really see people with dredge going zero and four, right, or zero and three. But you can easily see someone playing my burning long deck and going zero and three, where you know like or like a workshop deck or a control deck. You really don't see people go zero three drop with those decks. But you can easily it, yet. I think that like it's the, the burning long deck has a super high ceiling, and so it really scales nicely to, to player ability and experience. And it's rewarding and fun to play when you get to that experience too. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, it's got a high ceiling, but people need to learn how to play it. We'll be talking about burning long for some time to come, I think. Yeah. So what was the, t- the total tally? The total tally is Steve 7, Kevin 4. Those numbers, though, include a lot of zeros and ones that, you know, they're close calls. A more interesting stat, in my opinion, is if you look at our variance from our prediction to the actual, both of our median variance is 1.0. That median statistic pulls out some of the, the highlights, though. The actual average for you was 3.3, and the average for me is 3.6. So in this case, we had a couple of big misses, but we were very close within one on most of these cards. I think I'm going to do these kind of st- statistics in the future to see how close we are in the long run. It's, it was a pretty fun exercise for me to analyze our plus and minus and our variances across the board. So on most of these, there were lots of zeros and ones, and we were within one on each one of them. But the numbers on Abrupt Decay and Dryad Militant, those surprises, really skew our averages up into the three or four each, which is, I think, a little misleading. Well, I like that. I like that I only have a 3.3 average variance. That means that my predictions here are very pretty accurate. So. Uh, yeah, depending on what measuring scale you're using, I think we're doing pretty well. Lots of zeros and ones, though, and I wonder if... Boy, I wonder if Gate Crash is going to be even more zeros and ones. <laughs> because, well, you and I have some overall opinions formed about this set in advance, and I, just, I don't think they're complimentary. Okay, well, well, let's dive in. Next up, we have Gate Crash. And we want to start talking at first about the broad themes and mechanics of the set and the keywords and such, and then so we'll put, dig into the individual cards. Put Gate Crash in context. What is it? So Gate Crash is the second set in the Return to Ravnica block, which will be followed by Dragon's Maze in a couple of months. Big picture, what is this block about? Well, it returns to the city of Ravnica. It's about the guilds and the combat or the relationship between them. 
the first set had sorry return to ravnica had five guilds gate crash has five guilds completing the 10 guild cycle unlike the original ravnica which spread those 10 guilds over three sets we're getting all 10 in the first sets of the block and then the third set is going to do something which we do not know so what we're doing here is we're getting the second half of the guilds we're getting gruel boros orzov Demir and Simic in this set. The, the original Ravnica set had all ten guilds? In the block it did, but block. what I'm refer- referring to is the fact that the original ten guilds in the original Ravnica block were spread over the three sets of the block. And, and, the, and now the ten are being spread over the first two sets of the block. Exactly. What's the name of the third set? Dragon's what? Dragon's Maze. Maze, okay. All we all know right. about that set at this point is the title, and we're assuming that the titular dragon is Niv-Mizzet, the leader of the Izzet Guild, or the former leader of the Izzet Guild, depending on your perspective. Okay. I won't, I won't ask. <laughs> so, we're not so, really a Vorthos podcast here, but... Alright, so, so let's dive in. What are the, what are the, the themes of this set, then, first? Well, the, each guild has its own key keyword mechanic, mm-hmm. which mostly have to do with combat in this set. Let's get to that in a second, but let's sure. just... So it's guild-oriented. Yep. There are yeah. certain key guild mechanics. There are a number of interesting... So the, the, so each guild has sort of areas of emphasis. Yes. Aside from the keywords themselves, each guild has a particular character or or way that its cards are designed. Gruel, for example, focuses on aggression in creature combat. Uh, Boros focuses on high quantities of creatures. Mm-hmm. Orzov focuses on slower, defensive, grindy effects. Dimir focuses on subterfuge, sneaky things. So, so basically the guilds are do what the, the colors they represent do. They're basically color pie guilds. Uh, well, that's a, a little bit of a simplification, though, given okay. that each color is in four guilds in Ravnica. It's not just a simple. It's, it's not just a simple matter of saying that the blue guilds are sneaky, <laughs> because okay. that's not really how it works in the in the long run. For example, the two blue guilds in this set, Demir is sneaky, focuses on countering, working on the snack, also sorry the stack, also unblockability. Whereas Simic is not so sneaky, focuses a lot on creature growth, changing the nature of creatures, getting bigger creatures than your opponent through adding counters and such, or temporarily boosting creatures. So those two blue guilds really have not much in common. I noticed a number of card cycles in this set. Do you, you see some? Oh yes, that's continuing the pattern then from the original Ravnica. For example, we have guild mages who are one man of each of the guild's colors and usually have two activated abilities in our two twos. And we have the charms, which are continued from the original Ravnica and return to Ravnica, two mana spells with three modes each. Uh-huh. We have the key runes, which are three mana, mana producing artifacts that tap for each mana in a given guild and also become a creature that is emblematic of that guild for the um, um, activation cost of mana from that guild. So you're right, there are definitely a number there, of... I also noticed the Primordial Guild, which I thought was really interesting. Ah, uh, yes. It, seven, Primordial the, Psycho. the seven mana avatars that were designed for Commander. Really? Those were, okay. So, I thought <laughs> those, were all, those were all interesting creatures. They did really cool things. Well, they definitely do, and they're all focused on multiplayer and having bombastic effects that hurt each of your opponents in the same way. Mm-hmm. 
So this, so got it. So what are the, let's turn to the keyword mechanics then. What are the five mechanics? The gruel mechanic is blood rush, which is very similar to the original channel effect from Kamigawa block where you pay a mana cost, discard the card, and in the case of blood rush, they all have to do with giving power and toughness boosts to attacking creatures, which reinforces the aggressive creature-based nature of gruel. Gotcha. What's the second mechanic? The Boros mechanic is called Battalion, which is like a creature-based version of Metalcraft. If you have three or more attacking creatures, then Battalion triggers and gives your attacking creatures some kind of benefit. Extra power, first strike, that kind of thing. Okay. The Orzov mechanic is Extort, which is a evolution of the Lucky Charms from all the way back in Alpha. It's like a Soul War type effect. Yeah, it's a drain life for one, basically. It's also geared toward multiplayer because... It says whenever you cast a spell, it doesn't have to be of a particular nature, you may pay a white or black mana. If you do, each opponent loses one life, and you gain that much life. So it's like a drain life for one. It's a crystal rod. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but it's heavily geared toward multiplayer in that not only does it drain all your opponents, but you gain an increased amount of life for having more opponents. So it gets much better in multiplayer. Okay. The Demir mechanic is Cypher, which is a very interesting thing, kind of like Haunt in its mechanics, in that spells, they're on spells that get attached to creatures, and I say attached is a very loose terminology, and they call it encoded in this case, but it's a spell that has an effect then once that cipher spell is encoded on a creature, whenever that creature deals combat damage to a player, you get to copy that spell again. So you've got these repeatable effects that are frequently smallish effects. Most of them are smallish effects, incremental, say discard a card, lose life, gain life, tap a creature, that kind of thing. But they get more powerful because you have them on repeatable effect. You get them once when you cast them, and then every time the, the encoded creature deals combat damage to your opponent. Let me let me ask you some questions. I'd like what I'd like to do is I like to evaluate each of these in the abstract. But, but before we do that, I want to make sure I understand it. First of all, it says damage to a player. So, for example, if you have a, a creature that deals damage to you, does that mean you get to put this the effect on the stack? No, it, it is whenever that creature, the one that the spells deals, encoded combat, on, deals damage. combat damage to a player. Okay, it is. <laughs> so it's now, not. I don't. I don't want to make a misstatement here, but I think it's very, very difficult to deal combat damage to yourself. <laughs> it requires a very specialized set of circumstances. Okay. The other thing is this: this word encoded is new in Magic. I've never heard of this. Have well, you? they basically made it up for this ability, and it caused no end of niggling discussions. I think on Twitter, whereby should the ability, the keyword itself, have been encode? Should they use to have it used a code both places, and when will they use a code again in other contexts? Because there's all kinds of speculation about what encode could be applied to in other contexts or different said, cards in the future. Said code both places. Well, some people have been on this, this position that the keyword for cipher shouldn't be cipher; it should be encode. You have the effect of the card, then you may exile the spell encoded on a creature. A lot of people think that the keyword itself should be encode. But the so, thing is, it doesn't. It's not clear from the explanatory text what encoding on a creature means, because it says you may exile this card and encode it on a creature you control. <laughs> so it doesn't. It doesn't specify what encode means. You're very much right, and it has a similar problem to Haunt. The Haunt mechanic, which is why I compared the two, says when this card is put into a graveyard from play, remove it from the game, haunting target creature. 
What I'm so reminded of in both cases, you just get a verb basically that isn't actually explained, and you have to read the rules or the FAQ associated with the set to understand that it just basically means it's attached, kind of like equipment, but it's not in play. What I what it reminds me of is imprint, actually. Yeah, imprint is a very similar issue. Imprint, imprint upon, imprinting upon something, yes. Yeah, imprinted on it. But I'm wondering, sort of like logistically or me- mechanically, when you physically play these cards out, you know, it says exile, so you have to move the card to the exile zone. But then it says, so this card isn't actually placed on top of the card or near the card like an equipment might be. It's actually <laughs> put in the exile zone, right? Yes, it is. You're very much correct. Okay. Yes, and it brings me to one of the things that I, it's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, is when they have perfectly good existing mechanics and keywords that exist in the game, and they choose to simply make up new ones that repeat those effects. As you've said, they could have very clearly given this ability imprint. Well, I didn't say that. It might have been implicit in what I said. I am taking that opinion, or that position. They could have used imprint as this mechanic, but they chose to give it a new name and a little bit of different functionality to make it aligned with the Demir Guild. Similar situation exists with Blood Rush and the previously existing channel ability. Okay. The Blood Rush cards are templated exactly like channel cards from Kamigawa Block, but they chose to just rename the ability to align it with a similar suite of effects and make it more gruel. I find that this is a little bit of a troubling pattern that we're observing and will lead to lots of replicated effects in the long run in the game at large. Yeah, let's bracket that thought for a second. Let's go to the the fifth keyword and then we'll we'll evaluate them. So the last guild keyword is Simix Evolve, which is an effect that basically just adds plus one, plus one counters to creatures. It takes the form of whenever a creature comes into play under your control... If it has a higher power or toughness than the creature would evolve, you put a plus one, plus one counter on this creature. So it rewards you for playing cheaper threats early that are relatively small and playing larger creatures after them. And then your evolved creatures grow to match the size of the things you're playing later. And the Simic Guild trades in plus one, plus one counters for other effects with different cards. All right, so I have a number of observations um, that I'd like to put on the table. First, let, let's deal with this question that you, this issue that you, you point out about sort of the seemingly endless number of mechanics <laughs> over the course of the game. I mean, keyword mechanics. I, I, I look at the early years of the game, and all of the mechanics that were created were pretty intuitive, right? Flying, right? Sure. Okay, you know. Um, some of them obviously were not, like banding was very difficult to deal with. <laughs> Famous but, example. But some of them weren't even mechanics, they were just things they turned into mechanics, like vigilance. Lifelink. Uh, lifelink, yeah. I think, I think it is a concern that as the game continues to grow and age, that you have this never-ending list of mechanics, especially when they could have just taken imprint or haunt and, you know, used imprint instead of haunt or cipher. Yeah. On the other hand, I, on the other hand, here's the, the flips or the uh, counterpoint to that. As I look through over these, uh, these mechanics, Blood Rush, Battalion, Extort, Cipher, and Evolve, they're really flavorful. I mean, they're kind of cool. I like the, I like the names and it doesn't really bother me because none of these are probably going to, few, if any of these are going to see play in vintage. I mean, if you look at the 100 or so keyword mechanics, how many of them actually see play in vintage, right? I mean, not even 10% of them. So um, so it may not be as big of a problem as it might appear. But I, like you know, I said, the, the whole renaming of existing effects really is a pet peeve of mine more than anything else. 
Uh, and I don't think it's going to be any kind of a problem for vintage. But then again, it, the reason it's a problem is because you have you have a you have to basically remember and know all these mechanics, uh, you know, that are produced over time. But in fact, you don't. Is what I'm saying because they're not. <laughs> you functionally have to remember very few for vintage, sure. Exactly. But then again, so, when one comes up and is suddenly playable, then everyone in the format is forced to re-educate themselves on what that mechanic is. That's true. So let's let's evaluate some of these then. Um, so it seems to me that at least four of them are explicitly linked to comp. To no, three of them are explicitly linked to creatures. Four actually. Four of them are explicitly linked to creatures, and three of them are explicitly linked to combat. Battalion. Mm-hmm. And Battalion is explicitly linked to combat, right? Yes, and so is Blood Rush. And so is Blood Rush. No, Blood Rush is not explicitly, though. It just is functional. So, right? um, no, it is. In fact, all of the Blood Rush cards are target attacking creature. Oh, it says target attacking creature. Yes. Okay. okay. Um, and Cypher is only useful on creatures. Extort is kind of weird because it's not specific to anything. In fact, it seems to be grafted onto all, all sorts of things. <laughs> yes, it really does. And Cypher is also combat restricted because it requires combat damage. So you said Cypher? Yeah, that's that's true. Yes. Yeah. So so, for, so the for, three combat mechanics really do require combat. They they do not exist outside of combat. And, and Evolve requires creatures. Yes, and, requires and, multiple creatures to be coming into play. So the, the limit that all these have on creatures is a limit on their playability and vintage, it seems to me. Yeah, agreed. But to different degrees, though. Right. Blood Rush is well. Let me. I think from from worst, yeah, from worst to to least bad. Battalion is obviously the worst. Attacking with multiple creatures in vintage, especially three or more, is uh, is a a situation limited to very narrow decks or a very narrow category of decks, and most of those are workshop decks. So these Boros cards that don't come on artifact creatures really need not apply in Vintage. So we can pretty much eliminate from playability all Battalion cards. Yeah. A little bit less worse, but still probably unplayable, is Blood Rush. Just for the simple fact that Giant Growth effects, the only effect that has ever really been used in Vintage in that family is Berserk. I knew you said And only for its game-ending potential. Yeah, on a giant Psychotog or something. Right, like that. and none of these cards... Yeah, it was a it was a combo piece and a Psychotog kill. I mean, it's not it's not like creature combat. It was a burn. It's kind of a Nymagus elemental, but yeah. yeah right. Blood Rush well, seems unplayable for this. Cypher, in my opinion, could be relevant to Vintage. There are enough creatures that are dealing damage to your I thought you were going to do this from worst to best. I am. You think Cypher is the third third worst or no? It's the best. best. I'm doing it from oh. worst to best. Oh, I th- oh, in terms well, of the three combat mechanics. Gotcha. Sorry, I'm just ranking the three combat mechanics. Cipher is the only one that really could be relevant mm-hmm. because there are enough creatures dealing damage to their opponents in Vintage. It happens. Bobs yeah. and Snapcasters out of the control decks, workshops, of course, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in order yeah, for a given Cipher card to be playable, it would have to be very in- inexpensive. And the effect would have to be highly relevant to Vintage. So you're talking about the kind of card that simply doesn't exist in this set. I think we can draw a bright line. My sense is that the the four of the mechanics are completely all irrelevant in Vintage. And I feel comfortable <laughs> saying irrelevant. One well, of them. Which four do you think they are? Well, I think Cipher is the one that's potentially good. Oh, okay. Potentially well, useful. In that Me- case, I would agree. Uh, that doesn't mean that the cards with the other four mechanics are unplayable, but I would say that they would have to be playable for reasons other than the mechanic. Agree so, completely, yes. Okay, so so we're on that same page. I think Cypher is the interesting one because it generates card advantage as long as you can get the creature around. There are enough 
creatures like you mentioned that Z play in vintage like like Dark Ritual, not Dark Ritual, Dark Confidant. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's a hilarious uh, Freudian slip there. <laughs> there, are, there are great creatures in vintage, like Jace. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are plenty of uh, creatures in vintage, but but you know, um, it just remains to be seen. If there was a, let's put it this way: if there was a cipher card that was, say, blue, uh, draw one card, that would be potentially playable. Yeah, so it'd be a curiosity. Yeah. Like it's curiosity. Curiosity is a cipher card. It'd be like curiosity would be a cipher card if it drew a card when it came to play. If it was a cantrip, right? Exactly. Exactly. So here's the thing. thing. It seems to me that cipher is is actually probably better in vintage than another format. I think it's better in vintage than legacy, for example, because it's far more likely if you have a creature in play, it's going to be unblocked, right? So it's more like it's more likely a to not be removed by removal spells because people don't play a lot of creature removal, and b I mean there's not a lot of plows running around, right? And b it's much less likely that your opponent would have a creature on the other side of the board. In Legacy, if I have a creature on one side of the board, it's likely you have a creature on the other side of the board. Um, in Vintage, that just doesn't happen. And and C, I would say that a lot of the creatures in Vintage are util- most of the creatures in Vintage are utility creatures first and foremost. So um, you know you're going to be able to put this on on there. It's going to sit around. So you can put this on a Dark Confidant or a Zandit Swarm, and it's going to do its thing, right? Yep, agreed. So Cipher is is actually quite interesting. Question is, as you as you put it earlier, are any of these spells efficient enough? to be vintage playable in the first place you know it's it doesn't seem to me that it, it's cypher is going to necessarily put a card over the top right so like let's say you have a really good effect that effect has to be vintage playable or at least marginally vintage playable in the first place cypher cypher may may push it into more solidly yep. vintage playable but let me put this be vintage relevant in the yeah place, right? okay the card would need to stand on its own and be of value without being encoded and subsequently hitting someone yeah all right good So let's move on to the individual cards then. We've got a fair list, more so than I expected we would, and we're going to tackle them in alphabetical order. First up on our list, Biovisionary. This is another in a long line of interesting alternate win conditions. Let me just read it through here for the benefit of our listeners. Creature, human, wizard. One green, blue is the casting cost. At the be- oh, it's a 2-3. At the beginning of the end step... If you control four or more creatures named Biovisionary, you win the game. We always want to look at alternate win conditions in Vintage because we have the whole universe of playable cards to try and bring them about. And we need to look no further than the recent Laboratory Maniac for a very successful example of that. But this is a horse of a different color. The first thing I think of when I see a card, this particular card, is if there was a reliable way to get four creatures into play, we'd be doing it already and winning the game in other ways. But that's my knee-jerk reaction, and possibly not fair, because no other Rube Goldberg combination in the past has really required you to have four of the same creature in play, so it's obviously a little different. What's your take, Steve? Well, it's, it's Voltron. Assemble the parts and win. It's not quite as unwieldy as Coalition Victory, which is not playable. <laughs> Um, so I think the, the question, the, the main issue is how difficult or easy, as you put it, how easy is it to assemble the parts and satisfy these conditions? Um, you know, the obvious thing that pops into mind is Aloran, right? Aloran with Imperial Recruiter or Cavern Harvey, pretty easy, right? Agreed. 
So what would you use the, the Dream Stalker, Cavern Harpy, Imperial Recruiter, and assemble all four of them very quickly? Yeah, you can take the legacy shell of existing Allure Index and route these guys right in there for an alternate win condition pretty directly. Yeah, the problem is that Aloran doesn't see any play in Vintage, and Aloran, this might not even be optimal in Legacy. I mean, is this actually better than the other options in Legacy? In my opinion, it's not. This is a slower win condition, it doesn't end the game immediately, and it takes up more space in your deck. Also, as with some other blue win conditions, you might cite the fact that it's blue as a benefit, because you can pitch it to Force of Will, but you can't actually ever do that with this card if you expect to win. That is, unless you're relying on copying this card, which is another uh, tactic that you have at your disposal. But still, the point remains, a lot of people cite blue combo pieces as having an additional benefit relative to Force of Will. This one does not have that benefit. Okay. I think that the existing win conditions in Lauren are strictly superior to this in that they are fewer cards in your deck and they end the game sooner. You could execute your combo, for example and go to your end step, put this trigger on the stack, and one of these guys gets bolted. Now, you could very well save him from dying with Cavern Harpy, just like you do with Aluren today, but it means you're not winning the game on that turn. You get to just pass the turn and hope to win next turn. It's it's obviously inferior to all the derivations of Aluren win conditions that have existed in the past. Yeah, I, I also think, you know, um, the the other Aluren win conditions... So what what is the current win condition? The current preferred... Allure and win condition is Parasitic Strix, which is a creature that comes into the battlefield and drain life's your opponent for two if you control a black permanent, which you will because you're exec- executing the Allure and combo with Cavern Harpy. So there's one, usually, sometimes two Parasitic Strix in the Allure and lists, and that's what I'm referring to when I say it's fewer cards in your deck and much more efficient to just win the game now with one creature instead of monkeying around with putting four permanents into play like you would need to with Biovisionary. Yep, yeah. I don't feel like we need to beat around the bush with this guy any longer. I'm predicting zero. How about you? I'm on zero. Okay. I just think, even in Legacy, I think it's going to be not as good for the reason we just mentioned. I mean, it takes up more space. If you have it in your opening hand, you're going to wish it was like something you could pitch to Force of Will. And if, if it's plowed, you lose. So Yeah, plowing is especially bad and especially relevant in Legacy. Now, it's worth noting that there are other ways to win with this guy than searching your library for all the copies of him. You could just, since it requires you only to have creatures named Biovisionary, you could be cloning him in some way. There is really a very, very few cards that by themselves will make multiple copies of a creature, like Rite of Replication, for example, which would cost you a ton of mana to execute and would not be worth it. Anything else that you would be doing to use one card to make multiple copies would be an engine of sorts, which would likely be inferior to the Allurin engine as it stands, so... The the caveat that you could make duplicates of this guy and win the game is I don't think produces a better deck than Aluren today. Okay. Let's move on to a more interesting card, Blind Obedience. Now this is one that I think got a lot of initial press from the vintage crowd in terms of playability in this set. I think they were maybe reaching a little bit, but it's a white enchantment for one white. It has extort, which we've talked about already. And the ability, artifacts and creatures your opponents control enter the battlefield tapped. It's two-thirds of a kismet. <laughs> That's right. It's the better part of a kismet in that it's not symmetrical, of course. And it also begs comparison to Orb of Dreams and Root Maze, two cards that have seen vintage play in their day. Sadly, this card doesn't affect lands. And that's really the key, the key power of Orb of Dreams and Root Maze is the effect on your opponent's lands. 
Yes. Particularly in a post-onslaught environment. Or fetch oh, land. yes. With fetch lands. Root Maze and Orb of Dreams versus fetch lands is especially brutal because they lose two turns. This card affecting artifacts is by no means insignificant in Vintage. It will slow down a number of decks. It might have a very powerful effect at slowing Burning Long, for example, just because that deck is so reliant on its artifact mana. And it'll be a road, a speed bump against Grix's control or, or workshops. They won't be able to deploy their threats quite as fast. But that's really it. You're not buying enough time. You're not having a powerful enough effect with this temporary tapping of just their mocks. And, and the tapping effect on creatures is almost entirely irrelevant. Is there any application of this that you can think of? Well, I think the first question is, if we look at cards like Root Maze, do Root Maze, do root, do root maze see play? If does if first question I would ask is does root maze see play? If root the answer is yes, then the question is is this any better? Does this have any advantages over it? The question is no, and I think the answer is no. <laughs> the and, last time, according to Morphling.d, the last time a root maze made a top eight was in 2011. Okay, so the answer is no. Root maze doesn't see play, and the question is does this have anything to offer over it? I think the significant the um, lack of the ability to of tapping lands is the most important. I'd rather tap lands than creatures or artifacts. So I, I like the fact that it's asymmetrical. So that is an advantage, right? Mm-hmm. But it would only be like um, truly significant if tap lands. So I'm, I, I just don't see an application outside of lands coming into play tapped. I agree completely. On top of all of that, it's a white card. And as we know from many other examples... White has the hardest time finding a home in vintage decks. The obvious examples of, say, Bomberman and Green-White Aggro or any of the five-color decks, but Bomberman is a good example of a deck that might be able to slot this in right away. This just isn't powerful enough for answering any questions that Bomberman needs you to answer. I'm predicting zero copies at this point. How about you? I'm with you. All right. Let's move on to a card that, before we knew its text, we were very excited to see, and that is Demir Charm. It costs blue-black. Instant. Choose one. Counter target sorcery spell, or destroy target creature with power two or less, or look at the top three cards of target player's library, then put one back and then rest into that player's graveyard. I.e. envelop, swat, in a important natural selection elemental augury hybrid. Precisely. And I think you've also just outlined how to evaluate the card. <laughs> <laughs> None of those see play. Not, not one of those sees play. So then the question is, would they see play if you got to choose the modes between them? And it's pretty clear that envelope or envelope, depending on who you ask, gets to counter a couple of key spells in Vintage, just out of Grixis control especially. Tinker, Yawgmoth's Will, Demonic Tutor, Time Walk. But Envelope sees no play. It costs one blue. It's as efficient of a counterspell as can reasonably be. A number of other one blue counterspells do see play, and Envelope just never does. Now, this can kill Bobs and Snapcaster Mages, Revokers, some of the smaller creatures out of Noble Fish, but there are already a number of cards that do that much better, more reliably and more flexibly, a la Swords to Plowshares, Lightning Bolt, other bounce spells, etc., etc. How is this better than Is It Charm? It's not. In my opinion, the counterspell ability of Is It Charm is much more flexible in that it can hit numerous other things that Envelope can't. And the creature elimination possibilities, while there are a couple of key exceptions, Is It Charm is still going to be almost equally as effective 
then its third ability, the careful study effect of Visit Charm, is much more useful than the third ability here of possibly messing with someone's top deck tutor. This card is a real disappointment. It's a downer. It really is. I I really think they missed the boat with this one. Maybe maybe it's more relevant in Legacy, where countering sorceries is more common or has some more powerful applications. But it just doesn't feel like a demure charm. <laughs> I, see I mean, your Demir point. is Demir. I see your point. This charm isn't quite the sneakiness of what the Demir house represents, all told. But again, we're not really a Vorthos podcast. <laughs> so the real question is, is someone going to find a home for this that we're not predicting? I'm thinking back to things that we've talked about it before in the show, like Dreadbore. It's not nearly as good as Is It Charm, but uh, Rakdos Charm. You think someone's going to bust out and play one or two of these somewhere in their deck just to test it out and have some success? Not in blue and black. There's well, so many good cards you can run in those colors. Why would you play this? Well, I'm with you. It doesn't even have that that interesting, hey, maybe this helps a deck out kind of thing that Is It Charm does and has proved itself in. And it doesn't have that whole, hey, this frees up two of my sideboard slots that Rakdos Charm has. It just doesn't really answer any of the questions that we're hoping to answer in Vintage. There's certainly no deck that has a burning desire to start countering sorceries that didn't before. Well, I think that's really Narlers too, and I'm predicting zero. How about you? Zero. All right. Let's move on to one of the very interesting preview cards that we got very early from this set, the Planeswalker Domri Raid. I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing that right. Domri costs one red-green Planeswalker Domri, plus one, look at the top card of your library. If it's a creature card, you may reveal it and put it into your hand. Minus two, target creature you control fights another target creature. Minus seven, you get an emblem with creatures you control have double strike, trample, hexproof, and haste. Starting loyalty of three. Well, I don't think this card is going to see play in Vintage, but it is potentially playable in Legacy. It's aggressively costed enough, generates card advantage, and it, as we said many times, generating card advantage, especially with the first ability, I mean, is is really good, right? I mean, generating card advantage is the is the generally the threshold for playability for these planeswalkers. Having card advantage on the first ability is good, and then you the second one you can use your Tarmogoyf to to snap off other you know wipe out other creatures. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This has everything that you would want in terms of abstract card advantage from a card in hand standpoint we're drawing cards card advantage from a cards on board standpoint with fighting your opponent's creatures in the abstract i think it's great and in a format like legacy a deck of like rug delver is already tailor-made with a high number of creatures so you could slot this in in place of some removal somewhere you would probably need to up yep, the creature right. count. You would probably need to up the creature count from a standard Rug Delver list because lots of legacy creature decks are well known for having only twelve creatures, some or sometimes sixteen, which I don't think is enough to support this card. But on the flip side, Domri plays very well with Brainstorm yep. and Sensei's Divining Top as well, both highly played cards in Legacy. In the uh, in the the ultimate probably wins the game. So. Yes, it would only take one one. Uh, sorry, it would only take one Tarmogoyf, maybe one Delver in play to probably end the game. You're right. As soon as you get double strike, trample, hexproof, and haste. So vintage, though, I'm gonna say zero. Yes, and I'm going with zero too. And that's the score that we're keeping here. Next up, we have Foundry Street Denizen. Now, this is an interesting one because it actually, I think, plays on a lot of the comparisons we've made to creatures mimicking storm cards in the, in the past. He is red, creature, goblin, warrior, 1-1. One, one. 
Whenever another red creature enters the battlefield under your control, Foundry Street Denizen gets plus one, plus zero until end of turn. Now, Steve, I can think of two applications for this guy. One of them is Empty the Warrens, which obviously creates lots of guys right up front and is going to pump his power very high, very quick. Mm-hmm. And the other was simply playing a lot of goblins. You could play oh, I thought you were kobolds. <laughs> no, but that's another... You could build an engine that plays kobolds like with uh, the old Pebbles deck and, and kill with this guy, but I don't think it's worth putting him into that shell. Yeah, I think the main the main application is this guy is a goblin finisher. Ironically, he has to be played first, so that makes him probably less playable, which means he's probably not playable because goblins is so marginal to begin with. But he's at least we mentioned him. Yeah, I think you're correct. I think that while there are you could construct scenarios whereby he would be a very potent card with a certain board state, those board states are almost all basically inferior to what you can do with goblins already. So anyone out there want to take a stab at Cobalt? There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's true. But then again, I think there are much more powerful things to do with playing a stream of kobolds a la Glimpse of Nature and things like that. Don't discourage our listeners. <laughs> You're right. You're right. I don't, want to, I don't want to discourage people from experimenting. Give it a try. Tell us what you think. Along with Domri is another card that was spoiled early and is also very interesting. Enter the Infinite. Let me see if I can get the R&D speak costing right on this one. Eight, blue, 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 blue. Sorcery. Draw cards equal to the number of cards in your library, then put a card from your hand on top of your library. You have no maximum hand size until your next turn. So this is pretty clearly a game-ending card. And we have actually seen something of a lineage of game-ending cards. So where do you think this falls in the greater realm of history? (laughs) I don't know. Can you be a little more specific? I'm talking about cards like say, Conflux, cards like, say, well, I was going to say Epic Experiment, but we've already shown that that's a pretty bad example. Cards that you want to get on the stack and will, by virtue of getting them on the stack, probably end the game. I would say that this is, in that specific sense, cards that on the stack that resolve and then end the game. Aside from cards that actually say you win the game, right. it's as close as it gets. So, I mean, it's it's essentially like Yawgmaw's Bargain, right? You get into play, you're even more so assured to win the game. There you go. You I think I think uh, it's probably much more so than Conflux in that regard. So, if Conflux wins the game, like, I don't know, 95% of the time or 96%, this wins 100%. <laughs> well, I think you're right there. But the comparison to Conflux was the first one I thought of because... I obviously went to the fact that you're never going to pay the mana for this, and so you're cheating it into play with something like Dream Halls or Omniscience. Mm-hmm. And that deck already has access to Conflux, which, as you, I think, aptly put it, already wins the game a sufficiently high percentage of the time. I mean, Conflux is a deterministically endgame card. You get it, you get a particular set of cards. I don't care which, there's dozens of configurations, but you're going to win the game if you put Conflux on the stack. I see, I see, yeah. Well, Conflux, and so this card is not materially better than Conflux in that capacity. I, I, don't, I disagree. I think, you know, Conflux only puts five cards in it. This puts almost certainly more than that. Well, <laughs> more, but not functionally more conflux gets other confluxes yeah assuming you have dream halls and or omniscience into play and you put conflux on the stack 
then that's just a recursive chain. You will get your win condition and deploy it that way, guaranteed. So the question is, that deck already exists. Does it need more copies of Conflux? Does this card somehow better because it's one color or 12 mana or something else? Given the fact that we already have access to game-ending deck like that, and it's already not a thing in Vintage, I don't think the presence of this card pushes a deck like that into competitive top eight appearances. Uh, I'm not convinced, actually. Um, well, do you have an example of what this does better than a deck like that, or what well, other options this opens up to you? Well, I think it is better than Conflux. Well, I think it's sufficiently... It, I mean, I think it does more, but I don't think it's actually better. It is not going to offer you wins that Conflux doesn't currently offer you. You're not letting me answer the question. <laughs> I, I think one of the differences is that you can have a more streamlined deck that doesn't have to have a bunch of Confluxes and garbage like that. So you can have... I think that's the key, is that it's, you're, you're looking at... not. I think the question or the issue is not... The answer to the question is not... What does this card do differently? It's what, how does the deck around it look different? And the deck around it looks different because it's a more streamlined deck. A more streamlined deck means, in general, in vintage, a much better deck. Mm, that's true. And I think that's a fair assessment. There are, you could possibly condense your win condition into fewer cards with this. Yeah. I think, so let's, let's look at those main things. I mean, I'm trying to think of the cards that you play. I think you mentioned, you, you mentioned the key ones, Dream Halls and Omniscience. There's also, um, if you play a deck with those and Show and Tell and a Hive Mind, I'm just wondering, and you play, let's say, a bunch of packs, including Pack Negation, Force of Wills, Misdirections, you could basically play like a mono blue combo deck with, uh, Ancient Tomb stuff in Vintage. Mm-hmm. True. But my original assessment still stands. You can build mono blue combo with Dream Halls, Show and Tell, Omniscience, all the things you mentioned already. The fact that Complex is a five-color card is actually irrelevant to that assessment. You're never paying the mana for it. Yeah. So you still have, you currently have access to what you just described. To my knowledge, Hive Mind has never made a top eight appearance in Vintage. Omniscience has made a couple of recent top eight showings in various different configurations. There was an Academy Rector deck at Extreme Games that got first place in a small event. And there have been a couple other derivations of, of Omnitel decks coming out of Legacy that were transitioned into Vintage. So show and tell plus Omniscience is a relevant thing. I honestly look at those decks, though, and I see Gristle Brand or other enormous threats like Emrakul and Yawgmoth's Bargain, and I say, I wouldn't add and enter the infinite to one of those decks, would you? There might be a better version. I see. So I'm just trying to say, I think, I think the way you have to go is you basically have to go focused and not play all this other stuff. And I, by focus, I mean on the, the key cards that we've talked about, like um, Show and Tell, Dream Halls, um, Omniscience, and Hive Mind. Well, when you put it that way, I guess my objection is not so much that that's not relevant. I don't think it's actually better than what you have access to today. Yep. But your point stands that you, it could be done. So well, I, think, I think it is better than we have access to, but maybe not substantial, not significantly. Okay. Do you think people are going to do it then? Do you think you're going to see Enter the Infinite make a top eight coming up? So are we at the, we at the prediction section? I think so. I think we've covered what's possible. And why you might do it. I'm going to go, I have a feeling you're going to say zero, so I'm going to say one. (laughs) Big cheats. Remind (laughs) me to make you go first every time. (laughs) Actually, I'm a little bit torn here. Because if we're making predictions, I'm of the opinion that this is not better than what they're doing today. But I'm also of the opinion that you could make it work. There's no reason why you couldn't take an existing Omnitel deck, which has made a few sparse top eights, put one of these in, and perform just as well. So the question is, is someone going to try to do that? 
vintage communities all over the place. They didn't pick up the Vandal Blasts that I thought they would, but they did pick up Jace Architect of Thought, which I thought they wouldn't. So, boy, in an effort to not pick the same number that you did, I'm going to go with zero. But it's I don't feel very powerfully on the issue. I won't be surprised to see a one-of showing. Right. All right, we have our first non-zero prediction of the set. It's a red-letter day for Enter the Infinite. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on to a fun and interesting one, Hellkite Tyrant. It's not often that we get a six casting cost red dragon in our discussion of vintage playables, but hear me out. <laughs> Four red red, creature dragon, six five, flying trample. Whenever Hellkite Tyrant deals combat damage to a player, gain control of all artifacts that player controls. <laughs> it could have stopped there and we would talk about it, but moving on, at the beginning of your upkeep, if you control 20 or more artifacts, you win the game. So not only does this have some kind of crazy mass artifact stealing effect on a huge body, but it's also an alternate win condition. I think this bears discussing for the, um, in the vintage context for both of those reasons, and the combination of them is hilarious. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there really is only one place in vintage for giant red fatties, and that is Oath, and it's not a large place, mind you. It's just that that's where they could go right now. No other deck is going to be wasting its time casting a six-casting-cost red creature that doesn't even have haste. So, Steve, despite the fact that this has very interesting contextual effects in Vintage, do you think there's any way that anyone's going to bother trying to cast this card or put it into play with Oath when they could be doing so many other things? Well, let's, let's instead of like putting it that way, why don't we actually make more direct comparison? So, Such as? Bristlebrand. Okay. That, this is an interesting oath target for dealing with workshops, right? And it becomes a natural win condition. It's a, a bit more grindy. So let's the, the the comparisons in terms of like workshop answers are what uh, the Splinter dude. What's that? What's that big guy who kills? Oh, Terastodon. So obviously, when compare this guy compares unfavorably to Terastodon in terms of the immediate impact on the board, but he has a higher ceiling, as you would put it, in terms of the effect on the game overall. This guy can actually win the game for you in ways that Terastodon might not. Of course, the flip side is true, though. As soon as your opponent has their own, say, Steel Hellkite in play, then this guy kind of pales in comparison to Terastodon. Yeah, Steel Hellkite hasn't been seeing a lot of play recently, though. No, but a more current example would be Phyrexian Metamorph. Yeah, the flip side, though, is I like how this guy... um, I like how he's actually castable as well. True, very true. More castable than all the current Oath creatures. Yeah. Even Runescar Demon, he has a tiny advantage there. It's not really terrible to steal all your opponent's artifacts if they're a control player either. No, but every once in a while you're going to do that. I'm sorry, more than every once in a while. Maybe half the time you do that, it's just not going to be important. The other thing important. is, even if your opponent has a steel Hellkite, this thing will still deal damage. I mean, uh, uh, Metamorph, this will still deal damage, and you'll get to steal all their artifacts, even though it's going to die. Oh, that's a good point. Because of the trample and because of the nature of power and toughness, being 6-5, if they copy it, they're still going to take one. Very clever. I wonder if that was an intentional design choice, such that copying this thing wouldn't prevent its effect. So this really isn't stopped. It's entirely by Edamorph. I, I really like this creature. I don't know if it's going to see play, but I think it's um it's at least worth considering. So you're saying possibly sideboard choice in Oath. Yeah, it would have to be a more dedicated Oath deck. More dedicated how? A golden gun versus a gristle brand? No, I mean like a, a yeah, more like a, a specific, a, a deck that is built around specifically O, so not like Burning Long, mm-hmm. where you just O thing to draw 14. Right. A deck that actually is designed every game 
to find and activate a four deck with show and tell also. Well, the Golden Gun style build with the dragon pants on this guy would give him haste and have that added benefit there. Yeah. So that, I think you're right, that would be the home. Yeah. But to your prior example, though, Terastodon provides so much more versatility. You would bring, ter- bring Terastodon in in more cases, and it does more for you against the metagame at large. In my experience, when your oath is triggering and putting creatures into play against workshops, this guy would be win more. All right, it's prediction time. Since you went first on Enter the Infinite, I'm going to go first here and say zero. I'm really struggling on this. <laughs> is your feeling the same way I felt about Enter the Infinite, meaning someone could do it, but will they? Yeah, that was, that was, that's sort of the first layer. I'd say the other layer is... Um, no, I'm going to go a non-zero number on this. I'm going to say one. All right. The, the second layer, though, is that... We'll see if the price is right. I was trying to think if... <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to think if... Um, what people are actually playing in Oath. I have to consider that because I'm not really sure. Um, are they putting creatures in their sideboard? Are they... You know, the Oath decks have a lot of show and tell. You know, I just... There's enough things I like about this. I like the fact that he's hardcastable. I like the fact that, he, you know, you, I would feel comfortable playing this early with show and tell. And then, you know, just um, going in. I like the fact that you can't metamorph it like you can a lot of the other things, right? Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of advantages. I, 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 yeah, I'm comfortable with one. I, I, I think it's actually, you know, you know what? It's not very smart smart of me. <laughs> I'm going to say two. Ooh, very interesting. To answer one of your questions from a moment ago, my experience with recent oath lists is they are not customizing their sideboard with creatures to fight permanence. The only creature that I'm seeing in Oath of Druid sideboards lately that would come in in place of the existing is Laboratory Maniac. Okay. So I think even the Terastodon example, well, which is a good one from a historical perspective, is not even current. People aren't boarding yeah. in Terastodons today. Yeah, and I think there's a difference, though. Terastodon, you said, was better. I'm not sure. This this card stays in play. You put this in play on show, with Show and Tell on turn one. You play Show and Tell on turn one against a workshop deck. What are they going to put into play? Well, they're going to put into play a, a Metamorph. <laughs> That's the stock response, of course. And it, it's not a bad play. And don't don't get me wrong. Show and tell this guy out is a serious threat against shops. They do have answers. It's also worth noting that the five toughness that makes it relevant against Metamorph is also a giant drawback against the recent lists that have Dismember. Terra Nova really has lots of answers to this guy. Here's the thing, though. Suppose you play this on turn one and they do have a Metamorph. What happens then? You have this in play. They have theirs. They attack you. You get to attack them and take all their things back. Yeah, that's a good point, though. They can't attack you, and... Well, they can attack... They can play Lodestone Golem and attack you, though. They they attack you, you attack them, you get all their artifacts, including their their copy, so they can't attack you back. They can't attack you. Oh, you know what? You're right. I, I misspoke. I was thinking they could threaten you with Lodestones, but all you do is take five and then take their whole team on the swing back. Yeah. How good is Trigon Predator? This thing does something very similar to Wars. Well, but you're comparing a one-card to a two-card combo. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is hard castable again. My position on this guy is that it is possible, but not worth it. Okay. I'm going to say two. Two it is. It'll be very interesting to see the results on this one. Similar to Enter the Infinite, and we'll see how people adopt it, if at all. Next, we have Illness in the Ranks. This is Black Enchantment. Creature tokens get minus one, minus one. This is a highly efficient, permanent answer to creature tokens for one mana, and creature tokens are a formative part of multiple vintage decks. Coming from Oath, this stops their orchards from giving you creatures. 
and empty the warrens, which is a common kill condition in storm combo. So, Steve, I, I feel like the casting cost is clearly playable. There are many one black cards that do C play, and I think the effect is highly efficient, and it's relevant against decks that need people want answers to oath and combo. This is going to compare directly to cage. In a- yeah, I was going to say a year ago, this card would be potentially very interesting, but in the Graph Digger, I mean Graph Digger Cage is like the third most played card in vintage, which I think pretty much annihilates any chance that this is actually going to see any vintage top eight play. I, I don't exactly agree with you for one reason. That's fine. The primary reason is one of the drawbacks to Cage, which we covered in our set review, it is not experienced by this card, and that is this doesn't shut off your Snapcasters and your Yawgmoss will. So a Grixis control deck that wants to keep all the broken effects mm-hmm. can run this instead of Cage. But wants to be able to combat Oath. Yeah, that, but still wants to be able to fight Oath can, can run here's this instead problem, of Cage. Though. Here's the other problem. If you're playing with all those cards, you're not going to be able to combat Oath because you're putting creatures into play, potentially <laughs> before they cast it. Well, okay, Snapcaster Mage, you're right. It is a bad example of that. But still, your Yawgmoths will. If if we were in an environment where the control decks didn't use so many creatures, I would I would agree with you. But, like, I just think that... You think Cage just would rather keep their bobs and Snapcasters in and just play Cage and ignore the Oath that way? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's very reasonable, and I think you're right. Many players, most players, will reach that conclusion. I still can't help but think that a deck... Well, a deck that doesn't really doesn't really exist at the moment. It, Drain Tendrils, for example. Maybe the Whispering Madness deck we just talked about. Oh, that's a bad example. That's going to have creatures. Well, anyway, I think a blue-black combo-based deck that is that is semi-creatureless. Now, they're rare right now, but they have existed in the past. A deck such as that would want this card, would want to be able to abuse its graveyard via Yawgmoth's Will while still fighting Oath. Okay, so what is the answer? Well, How many? At the moment, you're right. This card is going to be almost completely superseded by Cage. I can't shake the feeling, though, that some people are going to look at this and say, hey, this fights Oath and it fights Long. That's the other benefit that this has. Cage hurts Long, don't get me wrong. And I'm not yeah, saying that it this, doesn't, this, but this hurts Long in another different way. Because it attacks Oath and potentially stops Empty? Right, because strong, experienced Long players are going to know how to play against Cage. They're going to know to anticipate so. Cage's. so much better because it stops Yawgmoth's will, too. <laughs> uh, don't get me wrong. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I just but it also stops your own Yawgmoth's will. Yeah. So okay. So what's your number? It's gonna. It's going to be low, but I'm going to say that it's more than zero and it's more than one. I'm going to say two. I'm going to say one. All right. It's a very bad strategic place for me to be, but <laughs> that's what yeah, you're basically called shot one. <laughs> but hey, we'll see. We'll see. Next up, we do have a, another interesting derivation of the whole Spectre history, which is Night Vale Spectre. I guess the proper R&D speech for this cost is Demir, Demir, Demir. <laughs> Creature Spectre 2-3. Flying. Whenever Night Vale Spectre deals combat damage to a player, that player exiles the top card of his or her library. You may play cards exiled with Night Vale Spectre. Now this is, as I said, another in a long line of Spectres. Most of them have to do with your opponent's discarding cards. And they've been many derivations of three and four casting costs throughout history, with the casting costs usually ramping up to give you more powerful things to do with those cards. 
This one, though, doesn't actually disrupt your opponent beyond the random milling of a possibly valuable card. But at the same time, it definitely does give you card advantage. You're taking those cards from them in effect. Now you're only going to really be able to play them if you're in a deck that is of a similar mana base. So this would be most relevant in a Grixis mirror match or Grixis against land still for example but it's also you're jumping ahead it's also a significant crapshoot because even if even if the stars align and you resolve this card on turn three and you hit them with it on turn four a lot of the time you're just going to flip over a land or a mox or something that you just don't care to cast and you've spent a lot of resources and time on something that was for very little benefit okay i'm gonna i'm gonna start the evaluations from the ground up so first of all is a three casting cost blue and or black creature mm-hmm. there aren't many of those in vintage that currency play currently see play but there are a couple um you know trigon predator is an example of a multicolor or blue creature if you will that is in fact two three flying that in fact sees play so we can't rule that out from the casting cost. Um, you know, Affidian effects no longer see play with one major exception, that, of course, being Dark Confidant. And that's <laughs> probably the reason. I, I suppose that that's not entirely true. Like the... Um, well, Cold Eye Selkie, yes. Yeah, Cold Eye Selkie. I mean, it's been a long time since Hypnotic Specter has seen play in Vintage. It does, Hypnotic Specter does not even see play in Legacy. Well, the most recent it's, relevant example of that, though, is Demir Cutpurse. Yeah, Demir Cutpurse is the is still old. Is that how? What is Demir Cutpurse from the original Ravnica? Then from the original Ravnica, ironically, and he saw play in the Sullivan Solution, which was a very right. popular thing for a brief period of time, and that was several years ago. So, and Demir Cutpurse forced was an Ophidian and also forced your opponent to discard a card of their choice. Is that right? Right. So here's the thing. Discard is not... Targeted discard is powerful in Vintage. General dis- or random discard is not. Hidden, Hidden Torak does not see play in, in Vintage. Random discard... You don't want to randomly make your opponent discard. You'd rather target what they what they discard. Right. Drawing a card, this is too expensive for that. But here's where this card gets interesting. We've yet to see a card that exiles a card. So there's two parts to this. The first is the exiling. And I think that we don't want to underestimate the effect of exiling a card from an opponent's library. Vintage is constructed in such a way that singletons truly matter. That exiling a card can be a, can be a huge deal if you hit the right card. Um, and if you can even swing with this two or three times. I mean, just think about what Trigon Predator does in the format, right? Yeah. This, this card can be quite powerful, exiling, exiling the right cards in the right match, particularly a blue match. So I, I, to that end, Steve, there is one fantastic comparison, and that's Thada Adele. Yeah, Thada Adele, but Thada Adele steals. Whenever Thada Adele Acquisitor, sorry, Acquisitor deals combat damage to a player, search that player's library for an artifact card and exile it. Then that player shuffles his or her library until end of turn. You may play that card. Right. See, so that brings to the second part. Now, Thada Adele has not seen a lot of play. I I thought it was going to see more than it did. Mm-hmm. Here's the second part, right? This is is a source of card advantage, and you I don't I don't think you're going to see a lot of the time land. I think you see a lot of the time good cards. <laughs> I, it, there's no condition here on how you play those cards. I mean, you re, you reveal a force of will, you can hard cast it, right? So, and it doesn't say when. Anytime, the rest of the game. You know, you're just not only exiling cards from your opponent's library, but you're generating a pool of cards that you can play at any time that aren't even in your need to be in your hand. So I think it's very hard to evaluate because we haven't seen a card like that, have we? Can you name a card? I mean, 
is is there a card that says search your opponent's library for a card besides that thought Adele is a good example but it's very narrow mm-hmm. right I mean so the first time this thing swings imagine if it flips if it hits a mox okay I'll play this mox oh next time oh I'll oh it's a fetch land that's great I'll play this fetch land <laughs> you, know, you know and then it hits like tinker or something and you're like okay I guess I win I think you're highlighting the good and the bad and you're concluding that that that's a good thing but i don't want to play i don't want to pay three mana and then next turn attack with a creature and hit a mox let me be very specific i like that i think it has two things that we need to evaluate separately and then together one is generating card advantage and the other is exiling cards from the opponent's library i think those are both important in their own right but then they also are important in the fact that you get you get both of them so unlike Unlike Hypnotic Spectre, which just makes your opponent discard a card, doesn't draw you anything, this kind of like disrupts your opponent's library with cards. So it is kind of like a Demir Cup purse, I guess. Well, but, it's, but, no, it's not. <laughs> I'm sorry, but randomly exiling one card from my opponent's library is far inferior to making them discard one card from their hand. I wouldn't say far inferior. I'd say it's it's different. I mean, exiling it, cards it from libraries... both. <laughs> uh, I, I'm saying I don't think it's far inferior because you, you can just it's I don't think the mere cupper says random anyway it's discard a card right you get to choose they they get to choose yeah it's not random I I, I think it's pretty much irrelevant I couldn't agree less that I would if I had to choose I'm going to choose forcing them to discard a card every day of the week to randomly pulling a card out of their library you are correct that vintage decks are designed very efficiently such that pulling one card out could be devastating. But if you take a look at the average list that you're going to play against, Workshops, taking one card of that deck, is entirely irrelevant. Dredge, same answer. Yeah. Burning Long, how many cards in that deck is going to cripple them if you take it out? It's not about cripple, it's a lot. Seriously? How many times would you have to hit someone with this, a Burning Long player with this card for it to actually matter? The first time you hit Dogma's Bargain, you win the game. So No, that's completely incorrect. You, as a Burning Long player, how many games could you win if you started without Bargain in your deck? No, I mean, say, if they, if they flip over Bargain, they're going to play it. So. You're kidding, right? On turn four, they're going to play their Bargain because they fo- randomly There's pulled it out of your deck? Two Moxen. What? You only need two, other, two additional mana. So you're talking about a Grixis control deck that played this guy on three, against Burning Long, mind you, tapped out on turn three to play this, oh. hit them for Bargain on four, and magically have six mana, and then they're going to win the game? I'm just saying, I don't... I think it's. I don't think that exiling the card is far inferior to making your opponent discard. No. Yes, I, it is. That's what I'm saying. Exiling is far inferior to making them discard. I would much rather have Demir Cut Purse's effect every day of the week than this effect. And Demir Cut Purse is much more castable. You glazed over the fact that this is three hybrid mana, which is about 3.5 mana in vintage. What does Demir Cut Purse cost anyway? Blue black one. That's what I thought. Yeah. I. I, I I don't deny that Demir Cutpurse is more castable than this, but I think that um, you're underestimating the the value of exiling one card at a time for an opponent's library. And well, but to my point though, can you name a second card out of Burning Long that is going to cripple them? It's not about crippling them; it's about generating substantial, you know, an advantage, a cumulative advantage. I mean, can you, the first time you attack with this and you reveal Ancestral or Time Walk, it's going to be ridiculous. Yes, but. The comparison to Demir Cut Purse then begs the question, would you not rather draw a random card out of your deck than a random card out of your opponent's deck? The answer is very clearly yes. If I have a choice between drawing a card from their deck and one from mine, I will choose mine every time, on average. This also exiles card. Yeah, and that effect is, as I'm getting at, minuscule. There's nothing nothing in the average vintage deck that you can exile that they're going to say, oh, my scoop. (laughs) There's just (laughs) nothing. 
I mean, no, yes, really true. There, there are cards that will really change their game plan. I'm thinking against Grixis Control, if you exile their Yawgmoth's Will, yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's oh. going to change their game plan. Right. Or if you exile their Tinker or their Colossus or something like that. You've spent too much time on this. I just think that you, in your analysis, you jumped too far from the two abilities to, like, my analysis is being holistic. I would say the fact that Demir Cutfer sees next to no play for the last several no, years. No doubt, no doubt. I, I mean, this card, I nothingness. Completely agree there. I just, I think the way you were formulating it earlier yeah. involved too much of a jump. Fair enough. So let's get to prediction time. We're talking about zeros across the board here. Yep. All right. Fair enough. Let's move on to some other possibilities. Realm Rite, blue creature, Vidalcan Wizard, 1-1. As Realm Rite enters the battlefield, choose a basic land type. Lands you control are the chosen type in addition to their other types. Steve, help me out with why I would want to do this in Vintage at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, this card is in the tradition of Phantasmal Terrain or more. It's on a creature, creature, and it also has the text of in addition to. Mm -hmm. So it's clearly something that would be potentially useful for you rather than disruptive for the opponent. Um, So a little bit like like, uh, Urborg. Of mm-hmm. There you go. I like the uh, I like the way in which this could allow you to uh, tap mistress workshops or mistress factories for color for blue mana, basically. Um, I mean, if this card has any real potential, it's in, I think in potentially in a workshop deck, right? Interesting. So you're saying similar to how Urborg is used, I play mm-hmm. one of these out, and now I have mana of many different configurations to cast other different spells. You're picturing yes. a workshop deck that also features blue spells then? Yeah. That would so, traditionally be too difficult to cast? Yep. Can you give an example of such a blue spell? <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me that. <laughs> what sort of things do we run in crazy stacks? I mean, uh, there, there happen to be some really good blue spells. There's, um, what's the, uh, uh, the creature that gets bigger with each artifact in play? I also have Master of Ethereum. Yeah, Master of Ethereum. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cards, cards of that ilk. I see. So not There's necessarily a- cards that cost lots of colored mana, but just cards that you can't cast with Workshop that are maybe three, two or three converted mana. What's the other? What's the other orb that's that's a, like a sphere effect? That's blue three. It's an artifact. Mindlock orb. Yes, that. Players can't search libraries. Yeah. Okay. Mindlock is another card that you could play with. It. We weren't doing this podcast when that came out, but if we had been, we would have definitely been talking about how that card has a powerful impact on Vintage. It hampers mana bases and tutors in, in many other different ways. And so if you could get it into play, it would be a very beneficial effect for a workshop deck, which never searches its library. Mm-hmm. But the casting cost is prohibitive. Blue. Ironically, I don't think that's a very good example of what you're talking about, because if you have blue mana with which to cast Realm Rite, then that same blue mana plus one workshop casts Mindlock Orb already. Yep. So the kind of spells that you would want to get are those that aren't artifacts already. Things like, say, in the Eye of Chaos. Mm, very nice. Very spicy. Yes, an example from the five-color stacks days that is highly difficult to cast unless you've got eight or more multicolored lands in your deck, and which is, even in that situation, is very difficult to cast if you've drawn a workshop at all. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, a Realm Rite would allow you to cast in the Eye of Chaos off of, say, City of Brass Workshop Mox, which you can't otherwise do. And there are a number of cards in that 
two colorless, one designated category that workshop decks love to play but traditionally have a hard time with. Cards like Tinker, cards like yep. Viashino Heretic for the Mirror, yep. things like that. This is an intriguing card. I mean, part of the reason it's tricky is because it's so novel. There are very few cards that do this, especially for one mana or less, right? Agreed. Agreed. There's one comparison I'd like to make, which I think players might not immediately get or might not get even after first explanation, and that is Coalition Relic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Coalition Relic was very interesting to me that when it was spoiled because I was heavily into workshops at the time, and it's a card that you can tap a single workshop for that would give you two colored mana of any color on the following turn. So if you had Workshop Mox, which is traditionally a great opening for a Workshop deck, throw a Coalition Relic in there, and then on turn two, you can cast cards, like I've said, like in the Eye of Chaos. Jacob Hilly in the the Columbus Mean Deck Open played with four Chromatic Lantern and two Card Monty. There you go. That's another great comparison, and I was going to go there next. And now that you mention it, how isn't Chromatic Lantern just superior to Realm Rite? for the particular application you're referring to? <laughs> it seems like it. it. Yeah, in that application. So the question is, is it useful anywhere else, like in a landstill deck? Probably not. It does give you a way to produce off-colors of, of mana in a two-color deck or more mm-hmm. without committing your dual lands to the board. Yep. So, for example, you can tap your basic right. islands for black or red and standstill to cast other things. You're going to risk that. I mean, landstill is what you're I You're going to risk being able to resolve and play and find, resolve, and play this guy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> of course. Or find, play, and resolve. There we go. So all of that was assuming this guy was already in play or something, but you're right. It's Then you're talking about adding a 1-1 wizard to a landstill shell, which is in every other way pretty bad. Yes, I think in the case of workshops, other recent printings like Chromatic Lantern and some other things already give us access to this effect if we need it. And in the case of blue decks that that want to fix their mana, I think you're better off just playing and building your deck with the understanding that you can accomplish that with your mana base if you're smart, rather than have to devote extra cards to it. I think that's right. Also, this card has no other benefit in terms of a deck like, say, Wizards, which is a very relevant deck and has done well in tournament settings and has used 1-1 Wizards before, but... Those were guys that had plenty of other added benefit other than just fixing your mana. Yeah, and it's not like you can't actually get mana from Cavern of Souls, although true, you, you know, you uh, this does allow you to use Cavern of Souls for, for any color that you want, right? Yes, yes, it would. You could turn your cavern into an island for which to cast spells like Brainstorm and Flusterstorm, but again, that's pretty niche. Yeah, I'm gonna have to say zero copy. I think I am inclined to agree. But this is one of those cases where I'm very glad that we talked through it because people who are listening to us for true evaluations of cards in, in ways that they may not think of, I think, will benefit from that kind of conversation. I think the next one is a little more of a candidate, but we'll see. Shattering Blow. <laughs> Shattering Blow costs one Boros instant exile target artifact. Let me just dive in on this one. Sure. This is Shatter, but it exiles the card. First of all, Shatter doesn't see any play in Modern Vintage because we have Shattering Spree, Ingachu, or all these other options. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I don't really think exiling matters at all in Modern Vintage with some very narrow exceptions. I mean, for example, it's not like Goblin Welder sees a lot of play these days. So the graveyard is a pretty safe place to put a, to put an artifact. The only exception I can think of that is maybe something like Blightsteel Colossus, where you know it's not coming back, or... <laughs> 
or a time vault where that just prevents them from winning that way. Yeah. I, I think what I'm trying to make is, is that exiling is not really relevant in contemporary vintage. I agree completely. There are corner cases where you would prefer to exile something, but in general, you would much rather prefer to have the card advantage offered by something like Ancient Grudge or the easier cast ability against workshops by something like Ingot Chewer. Yep. This is just inferior to all of those, the, with the exception of Blightsteel Colossus. An interesting point, though, is that the Vintage metagame could evolve to a point where this was much more relevant. It yes. would not be out of the question for an environment to surface where Goblin Welder is much more common, and therefore this card is more attractive. Yeah, one or two changes to the restricted list, and you're back there. Yeah, exactly. All right, so zeros across the board on this one? Yep. All right, I promise our listening audience that the numbers are going to increase in, in value pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> Don't make promises you can't keep, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, well, we need to look no further than one thespian stage. This is a land. It has tap, add one colorless to your mana pool, or two and tap. Thespian stage becomes a copy of target land and gains this ability. So, Steve, why might one want to copy lands in Vintage? I could answer that question, or I could um, <laughs> begin making comparisons. I mean, well, why would you want to copy a land in Vintage? Because there are lots of good lands in Vintage, so many of which, some of which are restricted, that you may want uh, because they're restricted. I mean, that's that, that's the main thing about copy effects, right, is that um, that's why Fork was restricted at one point, because you get to copy uh, a restricted effect. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you can test be in stage a library, you have two libraries. That seems pretty good. Or you have one when your opponent has one and are leveling the playing field. Exactly. There are many reasons why you want to copy. Another is because the marginal utility of a particular thing is quite high, i.e. Mistress Factory. There you go. Having a second Mistress Factory is a lot better than just having one. And this is a flexible sort of copying, the likes of which, in terms of land at least, we've never seen before. Right. So the the comparison is the closest we should have started. The closest comparison <laughs> is, is Vesuva, right? Where this is a Vesuva is a clone for lands, where this is more of a Vesuvan doppelganger. Yeah. The reason I didn't want to start with that is because Vesuva sees no play. Vesuva sees no play, and that's fine. So the question is, is a clone for lands inferior to a Vesuvan doppelganger for land? I think <laughs> the, answer is, the answer is possibly yes. This is an entirely novel effect. Mm-hmm. That makes it worth analyzing quite carefully. I agree. So you've already listed Library of Alexandria and Mishra's Factory as good examples. What else might you want to copy, which would inform what matchups you might want to land in? Well... You might want to copy an opponent's colors, like a specific color of mana that you don't have. Um, okay. You might, copy, you might want to. Co- let's just go through possible things you might want to copy. Mm-hmm. You don't have a specific color. You might want to copy something your opponent has. And there's probably a reason you don't have a specific color it's because you've got this card instead of a fetch land. <laughs> That's it. You might also, you might also no, no. Quite seriously, yes. You might also want to copy a an opponent's uh, or one of your forbidden orchards, which have high marginal utility in, uh, say, an oath matchup. Right. Uh, you, you might want to. To be specific, though, the oath mirror is one way that that might be relevant, but more likely a workshop deck or another deck that is not running Forbidden Orchard has access to ways to even the Orchard battle and therefore not trigger Oath. That's what I'm trying to say. Exactly. Um, Another thing you might want to do is you might want to turn this into an island so you can return it into your hand with Gush. (laughs) Crazy. (laughs) 
Um, more seriously, um, you could copy an opponent's workshop to get some generate some mana. You might want to copy uh, an academy to kill theirs. You might want to um, obviously we already mentioned library being quite useful, and you might also want to copy uh, like a wasteland or something. Yep. And uh, or like a buried ruin or a, a useful niche land that your opponent has. And also derivations of those things. You might temporarily need a workshop in the early game because you didn't draw yours. Right. And then after you've deployed some threats, you can change this into a factory. Or, or a wasteland. Or yep. a wasteland to fight their mana base. Let's say <laughs> you developed better in the mid-game and they're stuck on lands. You can copy your own or one of their wastelands and double up the effect on them. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and it's true. Like, even if you're playing this in a workshop deck and your opponent goes, Forbidden Orchard mocks Oath, you can play this and make a creature, and they, they won't out, you yep. know, until you can get to the point where you can actually deal with the oath. So that's also true of Landstill decks that would use this. And it's also good against Landstill decks when they're trying to kill you with Mishra's factories, and you can clog up the ground that way. Absolutely. And in fact, it offers not only do modern workshop decks like Terra Nova have lots of man lands to fight Landstill, it offers a workshop deck a way to even the odds or get better odds against Landstill while also offering you other effects or access to other things. Yes. So it, it changes. I mean, that's why I think the Vesuvian Doppelganger is better than a clone. We didn't even mention the fact Vesuva comes into play tapped, which is a huge reason. To, that's got to be the reason it doesn't see any play. I mean, yeah, that is an enormous drawback. Now, it's worth pointing out that this land can't copy a land any sooner than Vesuva can. But it can at least tap for mana in the meantime. So. Right. So if you desperately need the copy, you are actually setting yourself back worse than Vesuva, because you've got right. to tap this and two other mana. Right. But if you don't desperately need the copy, then you have the access to this playing your spells immediately and copying other things over time. Yep. Let's also not forget the interaction with Crucible of Worlds. You use this to copy a Wasteland or a Strip Mine at one point early, and then replay it and copy a Mishra's Factory to speed up your kill later on. Absolutely. So we've described a lot of scenarios. Are you, are you seeing this card in multiple archetypes? Yeah, I mean, I think it could definitely see play in multiple archetypes. I mean, I think Landstill and Workshops stand out for sure as, as the two probable homes for it. Um, I'm just trying to think about where where else it could see play. Are there any decks that use a lot of uh, a lot of utility lands besides those two? Not a lot of utility lands. No, I mean Bomberman has a more diverse mana base than the average Grixis control deck does due because to the presence of, cavern? of cavern and occasionally library. But I don't think that's a compelling reason to run this in such a deck. It's yep. interesting that you could use this with Cavern to great effect because you could continue to change it back and forth and get new uncounter, you know, new, uh, right? I don't, I think that's wrong actually. I think that you will get a Cavern of Souls that doesn't tap for any creature if you copy it. Okay. Because Cavern okay. only triggers on entering the battlefield, right? You'll end up with a Cavern of Souls that can't produce colored mana. Okay, okay. I, I scratched that. <laughs> You'll end up with a Cavern that can produce colored mana, but can't be spent on any creature type. <laughs> Which is really awkward and humorous, but but doesn't okay. help you at all. <laughs> because the second ability on Cavern reads, tap, add one mana of any color to your mana pool. So it would yeah. still do that. Spend this mana only to cast a creature spell of the chosen type, which there wouldn't be. <laughs> if you had a creature spell that had no type, that's really odd. No, that still doesn't work. 
at any rate, it appears as though there are at least two really common candidates, workshops and landstill, that could benefit from this. The thing I'm wondering is, where do you make room? Terra Nova already has eight man lands. So it seems pretty clear to me that you could afford to cut one of those because this would still serve the purpose of those man lands and give you more flexibility in other contexts. Every once in a while, you're going to be disappointed to draw this instead of a factory. But on the flip side, it's going to help you in other cases where a factory would stink because you can get access to a sixth or a seventh wasteland, for example. And in land still... Colored mana is at a premium in that deck, but you do frequently have already five, six colorless mana sources mm-hmm. between strip mine. And, oh, wait a second. Hold on. I'm, I'm, I'm miscounting completely. You already have eight or nine colorless mana sources in a lot of the land still lists between factories, wastes, and then library strip. So again, it seems pretty clear that you could shave one of those, one of the wastes, one of the factories, maybe fit one of these in if it would help you in the long run. I'm a little leery about it in that context because, well, you're really banking on the long game. It's nice in Landstill's case because you could spend mana EOT if you didn't end up countering a spell on their turn to get the copy effect. It's going to be much more transparent in a workshop deck when you literally don't spend your three mana on your turn when you could have but i don't think transparent is really too much of a concern for a workshop deck in that context as a late game play though pulling this off the top is probably going to be very valuable in some grindy games where workshops really needs one type of thing and now you have access to more of it you remember like how insane the academy is in the the workshop mirror right because it's the one card that can break a lot of stalemates yeah this this card, I mean, can stop your opponent's academy. Yep. Uh, or it could just like copy their workshop and help you ramp out, giving you, giving you more draws that get you out of a, a stalemate. I think we're getting into some really tricky to predict territory here. You and I both agree that this card has lots of value. It will almost certainly see play. The amount of play that it sees, though, is really up in the air, in my opinion, because you could realistically fit two, maybe even three of these in workshops. In Landstill, I would expect to see two at the most, probably one. People will try one. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't see a compelling reason to load up on them. It's just an incremental value that hedges a little bit against uncertainty in a lot of ways because the Landstill versus Workshop matchup is one that really rewards a player's familiarity and preparation for the matchup. No Workshop player worth the salt hasn't tested against Landstill and knows how to fight that. And no landstill player worth assault hasn't experimented with many, many options for how to win that matchup. Mm-hmm. I don't think that loading up on Thespian Stage actually is the thing that pushes you over the top against workshops. Yeah. I think that you would be hurting yourself if you tried to. So I think that landstill starts and ends at one of these, if at all. But I think that there's lots more variation in the workshop context for how many you could fit in. Another way of thinking about it is it's possible this card allows you to cut it serves as like the second or third copy of a number of singletons or duplicates sure so like for example instead of having like three maze of its sideboard you might have two in this guy oh good point i never even considered the whole maze interaction you're right Oh, that's an interesting point point. and maze of it has been sideboarded in all kinds of crazy contexts in the past also also has a relevant interaction with tabernacle yep if Tabernacle is being brought in against you, this is a way to fight that as well as a, as a wasteland effect. Yep. Very interesting. 
I don't know how to predict this one. I really don't. I'm predicting a non-zero number. Oh, um, I think, I think, um, and I think we're going to see a handful of skilled and noteworthy workshop and or landstill players try this out. And those are the kind of players that are likely to make a top eight. Even if this card wasn't the thing that did it for them, I think you're going to see it in some top eight performances in the months to come. I'm looking at Josh Pachusek's latest landfill list, and his latest landfill list has two fairy conclave, one ghost quarter. (sighs) See, that's just a great example of what you're talking about, these role-playing lands. You could cut a a conclave, and you've got this card that can be conclave, ghost quarter, factory, or Alexandria. I'm almost certain he'd rather have... I can't say this, but for sure. But doesn't seem like he'd rather have another this guy than than first fairy conclave. I mean, this thing can become another factory. Yeah, right? let's not discount the fact that it can be a blue source in the long run, as you said. So it, it plays lots of roles. Yeah, I agree completely. In a configuration like that, I would definitely go one one one. Wow. So so I think I'm going to have to go with a non-zero number here too. That's a good go example ahead. of what I'm talking about, though. He's a, a seasoned landstill player. That's a heavily metagame to this decision he's got there. Not intuitive. La- multiple fairy conclaves and vintage is not intuitive, nope. and not many players would reach that decision or conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to go. I mean, I think the diversity of lands, like maybe in the decks that have like two or three buried ruin, you cut one of the buried ruins for this. Yeah, and the decks that have eight man lands, I think it's pretty clear that you would one. start with one and maybe go up from there. That makes this very difficult to predict. <laughs> I'm with you, and plus it could catch on. It could catch on and become something of a standard. Yep. Uh, but we've seen a lot of dynamicism in the mana bases of the two decks in question over the course of yep. the last year. I mean, they've all over the place. They've been. Yep. Well, uh, I think this could, in the this next... could be a really big number or a really small number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you. It could be anywhere between five and twenty by the time we're reviewing even these higher. results. And it could even be higher. If it became a standard, it could be even higher. You're right. I mean, it could be like two, three years ago, we weren't even talking about Mistress Factories and Workshop decks. And now look at that. Oh, yeah. So okay. all over the place. Who's, so, who's, who's predicting first on this? Who's going to go? I'll, I'll defer to you. You want to go first or second? You tell me, man. <laughs> well, I think it's better to go second, as long as we're competing against each sure, other. Sure, it doesn't sure. help me actually reach my answer any better. Okay. You can go first, and I'll go first with the next one. All right. I think it's more, it's going to be more than two or three. I think we're looking at in the five to ten range, but I don't know how good it is, so I'm going to say, I'm going to say six. Well, the number I had in mind was seven. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's fine with me. If you want to do the price is right thing again, no problem. (laughs) Well, if if I said eight, that eliminates seven is. <laughs> I know, but in the spirit of accuracy, if you were really thinking of seven, I'll, I'll really give you the was, credit for that. I really was thinking seven. Okay, I mean, fine with no, me. I, I'm just afraid this is going to be one of those things where it's a much higher number, like like uh, rest in peace, because I mean there's so many workshop decks that appear in top eights, and if all if like a huge number of the workshop decks just run one of this thing, then that's yeah. a it's a huge number. Then the appearances go through the roof. You're right. So uh, what I think really I think several players are going to experiment with this. Yeah, you might see a rash of ten appearances in the first two months. Yeah, but the real uncertainty to me is will Long. it stick? Yeah, will it? Will those players think find that it's relevant and that it deserves a spot going forward? In which yep. case, you could be right. There could be thirty appearances in three months. 
I don't uh, you know, boy, the more we talk about this, the more I feel like predicting higher. But well, that's that's what I originally was like, wow. Yes. You know, <laughs> I mean if if Josh Potusek puts up a top eight and let's say he puts up one top eight a month, that's the first one is one one stat for him and then two people copy him. Yeah. Then that's like five or six right there, not even counting the workshops. In three I was months. Saying that, and you're right. That's the least. That's the least of the appearances because the workshop <laughs> players are much more likely to try this thing, and I think yeah, it's going to appear in higher numbers. I, I, how could this be worse? How could this be worse than Fairy Conclave, which comes into play cap <laughs> and just becomes your blue land in, in less than a turn, uh, one well, turn. No? I think yeah, uh, I think that's a little oversimple, but but your point is relevant though. Uh, it's just a blue land in less than a turn. It just you can't tap it until one turn. I mean, yeah. this card has to be better than Fairy Conclave. I think it's better than the second Fairy Fairy Conclave. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, hell, it could copy the first one. It's, this seems fine. So, boy, I, I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable going one. Whatever you say, plus one. I'm trying to put myself in the mindset of of uh, the Martello players and the Terranova players of the world. I think they're going to be skeptical, but I think it's people like Blaine who will try one. It's yeah. people like that, you know, who who went with Buried Ruin, who who see the value in utility lands. I think more. I think the one thing that I pointed out in this podcast is, is it's not trivial. Is the ability to copy Forbidden Orchard and delay oaths. That's I think a good, that, you're right. It's really non-trivial. You might even see this in the sideboard of, of workshop decks. There may be one in the main with more in the sideboard. Although, although, the effect. Way, although it just occurs to me, the way I described that actually earlier is incorrect. Because you, if they go... On one. Yeah. If you're on the play, though, jeez, uh, yes. you, you, you would have to play this Mox Mox Go in order to fight off turn one Oath that way. It's yeah. possible. I mean, I think the main thing is they get an early Oath, but they don't have the Orchard. This comes into play. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's just a one of anyway. It's a situational. But if you had more in the board, you could realistically get into a mid-game scenario. And by mid-game, I mean turns two and three. Where you are the one other thing? (laughs) No, what I'm saying is you could... Where you're the one other thing. Where you have more... Where you generate the creatures on their side. Wow, no, that's not even even what I was getting at. What I was getting at is you could get into a scenario where you have early threats on the board, and you just pass the turn with this and two mana up. And what can they do? Yeah, they can't just go orchard into oath in that scenario because then it'll lead to what you're saying is where you're going to let the workshop player oath. Um, but the point is, you can. It's proactive defense. You can just sit there with this and say, "Hey, as soon as you play that orchard, I've got one, so you got to hold it." And even then, they can't hold it. I mean, even them holding that isn't a viable option. They've got to find another answer. So in the landstill mirror, if you're playing workshop against landstill, isn't this like a land you want to see all the time? I mean, this copies, you don't have a factory, they do. This copies their factory, right? So then you can begin using factory, right? I'm of the opinion that pretty much all your non-workshop lands in that matchup you want to see. You want to see wastelands, you want to see factories. In that context, you would actually want this in addition to the eight-man lands you've got already. This is just the best of because this can copy a a library or whatever, right? Well, that's not really relevant for a workshop player versus landstill, so to speak. But your point is made, though. That's the sort of thing where if I'm fighting landstill and I've already got a full boat of man lands, I would still want some of these in the board to bring in. Because you just want to draw all lands that are better than theirs. Exactly. That's all you're trying to do. This is a land like that. I don't think that's irrelevant at all. I mean, 
no, opponent, I, I don't think so. I think you could see like, in the board to fight Oath and Landstill out of shock. Think about this way. No, think about this way. Your opponent is like, whatever, Landstill, and they start attacking you with a factory, and they play library, and you get the seven. You know, you can, you play this, you can copy their library, draw some cards, and then, you know, to draw more of your lands to deploy <laughs> to the board. I'm serious. Well, you're not wrong. You could do that. My point is, if you get into that scenario, you're much better off copying their factory. Yeah. You start beating them down. That's the part of the reason why Terra Nova exists in the way it does is because you force them into a situation where they can't fight you on that. This card is no worse than any other land. It taps for a colas. It does not come into play tapped. It's not a legendary land. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, it's a a blank, uh, you know, whatever, a a desert. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the more, the more we talk about it, the more I think the appearances is going to go up. I, I'm starting to feel like this is more of a 10 to 15 or 10 to 20 kind of thing. We'll revise your, make your revision. Yeah. I'm going to up my estimate to 10 and I'll put you at 11. Thank you. That's what I was going to say. (laughs) (laughs) this is a very interesting sort of partnership we've entered into here is i agree to (laughs) put your guesstimate above mine because you think i'm going to undershoot it pretty much every time i could just guess 99 i I could guess 99 and put you at 100 and then i'm almost Uh, i would would, would, in that case i I mean there have been a number of times where burning wish you said six i said 11 yeah you didn't just say seven i i know i'm just making fun the system we've got here is (laughs) is is where we've basically chosen the same guess here well, the thing that's funny is that, like, when when you originally asked me, my first number I, I thought was was ten, and then and then I thought more carefully. I said, "No, I'll go seven. And then you said, "I think this is going to be a five to ten range." Uh-huh. Which I think I think is probably pretty accurate. I'm not really confident in the. In the in, you know what? Let, let's just stick with my seven. I'm going to stick with seven. Oh, uh-huh. it's not talked himself out of it, huh? You're willing yeah. to let me go above. Can I can I, I edit mine to eight then? <laughs> here's the here's the thing. I think something we need. To, you know, I haven't really factored in a lot to my reviews. My set reviews. I tend to put an analysis, despite being the same um, basic you know idea predicting mm-hmm. cards. I think for something like this, one thing you have to consider is what are sort of player inclinations, right? Sure. You can't just look at it from an objective analysis, but what are people likely to do? And I think the first question is beyond is this playable is, is this the kind of card that vintage players will try? You know, Vandal Blast is not. Whereas I think like Rest in Peace exemplifies the kind of card they will. You know, it's like... I've, I know so, exactly what you're saying, and I've been feeling the same way with this assessment. And I've been trying to put myself in a position of not should this be played, but will it be played? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so... Is this more of like a card that vintage players will feel comfortable experimenting with or not? I think like with Rest in Peace, people hate Dredge, so they're like going to play a lot of it. With Vandal Blast, I, I just think it's like people are really wedded to certain kinds of artifact removal. I see your point. So the That's why is, I was land- surprised uh, by the whole Jace Architect of Thought versus things like Electromancer. I thought for sure nobody would try Architect of Thought because everyone's so enamored with the Mind Sculptor. Well, if the mind sculptor had never existed, I would be much more inclined to predict success for the architect of thought. But well, only one between person, the two, only one person did. So you weren't sure. So I guess the question for this is for thespian stage is: Is it the kind of card that specifically workshop and landstill players will pick up? Yeah, and I think you're totally right that it is. I think it is. I'm going to go back to 11. Let's do it. Okay. I'm at 11. <laughs> I think you're right. It, it is the kind of card that people are going to experiment with. If Fairy Conclave is making an appearance, then there's no reason this won't. And they're also the kind of players who are likely to succeed because they understand these things. They'll test them. Yep. They'll figure out where they go. I also think it looks like a fun card to play. (laughs) 
That's true. It does. Which subconsciously influences people's decisions. So I feel comfortable with my prediction of 11. It's by the way, that's much more than I would have thought before we had done this podcast. But I yeah, but. I should I should just mention something that I haven't mentioned yet. Is that I'm not writing a set review. So usually when I do this podcast, I'm sort of in the process of preparing a set review. Right. And so the reason I say that is because I think it's important for the listeners to understand that I'm really I'm not holding anything back. I'm putting everything out there, you know, in in doing this. So there's nothing, you know, that, that I'm saving for the set review. No deeper level of analysis. That brings us to Whispering Madness. Now this is a very fun card. Two blue black sorcery. Each player discards his or her hand, then draws cards equal to the greatest number of cards a player discarded this way. Cipher. So the first place we can start is with the casting cost, which is two blue black, which is already played in vintage, represented by Tezzerite Agent of Bolas. Mm-hmm. Pretty clearly playable, castable. Yep. And the closest comparison for this card is obviously Windfall, because this is a Windfall with some additional <laughs> yep. upside. Yep. Steve, Windfall is a pretty clear, powerful component of your current Burning Long list. And That's right. So do you think this Win- this compares favorably to Windfall? Well, you know, Windfall is an interesting card. Windfall is currently restricted in Vintage, probably for good reason. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know, unbelievable on the first two turns. It's also good situationally. Um, I, I think that this does not compare favorably to Windfall, primarily because with respect to Windfall, its efficiency is so paramount. You know, it's playable because you can play it with a land and a mana crypt on turn one, and it's extremely disruptive. This um, is much closer, I think, in comparison to diminishing returns. Now, I would agree with that. Part of the the brutal efficiency of Windfall is being able to play it right off the bat, get that seven-card benefit, also get that somewhat moderate benefit of disrupting your opponent. Yeah. Well, what about the notion of Cypher, then? Do you think that that changes the evaluation materially? Possibly. Um, and so I think let, let's let's compare this more carefully to diminishing returns. Okay. I think that would be useful. Diminishing returns, for uh, those who don't know, is featured in the sideboard of your burning long list, mostly because you need a draw seven to have access to for Burning Wish and that all the other better ones are in the main deck. Right. Diminishing returns is blue, blue, two. I think that this is basically comparable to that in terms of the casting cost. Any deck, any storm deck is going to have probably just as much black mana, probably just as much black mana as blue mana. The only exception is if you have Academy. You can't you can't really accelerate this out as well as diminishing returns. So the casting cost is basically a wash. Agreed. The trade off the trade off is that is that this card well, let's start with diminishing returns. Diminishing returns to exiles ten cards from your library, which makes it harder to use in a lot of different decks because you're forced to build around that, right? You can't play a deck that has like, for example, one ten rolled main deck. Sure. And no other ways to get it. So you have to design it. You could you could build a deck like that with this. So that's an advantage. This has on diminishing returns. The other advantage this has on diminishing returns is has Cypher, which I think we should delve into later. But if we can abuse Cypher, then that's a clear advantage over diminishing returns. The only other thing I would say is that diminishing returns will always draw draw you at least seven, as long as you have seven cards in your library, graveyard, or hand when you play it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas this will sometimes, in fact, often not draw you seven cards. In the pantheon so, of draw sevens, windfall and diminishing returns would rank very close to each other. 
would they not? Yeah, I think that's right. So if, if you're hierarchically ranking draw sevens, I think it's pretty clear that Tinker, Tinker for Jar and Wheel Fortune are the top two draw sevens, <clears throat> at least in, in contemporary vintage. Historically, Time Twister played a very important role because it was the only card that you could use to create infinite loops because of its recursive power. So there were two early recursion decks, both by Mark Chalice in 95. There was the uh, original Fork recursion deck, which contributed to Fork's restriction. And then there was the Forgotten Lore recursion, Verduran recursion deck. But both decks were created infinite loops, usually taking infinite turns and drawing as many cards as they wanted before winning. And Time Twister was the key card in both because Time Twister was the one card where you could basically play it, get all of your restricted cards back into your library, like Time Walk, and also generate enormous card advantage. So in the Verduran Recursion deck, the first thing you wanted to do post-Time Twister was play Forgotten Lore on Time Twister because it was the only card in your graveyard. Then you just replay it with fast bonds and stuff like that. Um, so Time Twister was like a very important historical card, but in modern in modern combo decks, all you're trying to do is, you don't need to take infinite turns. All you have to do is generate nine storm and play a tendrils or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the recursion element is far less important. In fact, the recursion element is a drawback because what you're trying to do most of the time is build a, build to a giant Yogmoth's will. That's the most efficient route to storm 10. And Yogmoth's will not only generates the storm, but also gives you the resources, the mana that you've already played to fuel and find the, the tendrils. So I think it's pretty clear that Tinker for Jar is probably number one because Jar is less symmetrical than the other draw sevens. Your opponent doesn't get to untap if you don't win in with an entirely new hand. And then Wheel of Fortune is right after that. Then I'd say Time Twister. And then fourth best is probably Jar and then Windfall followed by Diminishing Returns. The question is, is this better than Diminishing Returns? After that, you have get increasingly janky draw sevens like Reforge the Soul, Time Spiral, and Time Reversal. And then there's just stuff that's garbage and would never see play any see any play in vintage like Sway of the Stars, Magus of the Jar, Temporal Cascade, Wheel of Fate, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Time Spiral used to see some play in vintage, but it's not really vintage playable. It's more of a legacy card. Um, but I definitely think this card is probably... I, I think this card is better in vintage than um, than Time Spiral, and Time Spiral used to be restricted. <laughs> so that's something. That's a sign of the times. <laughs> so you say that this card is comparable to Diminishing Returns. Do you think it's better or worse? Do you think it goes above Diminishing Returns on the list? Well, it's really hard to do because the, it depends on what criteria you use. Um, you know, Diminishing Returns at least sees play in one vintage deck right now and has a number of top eight appearances because of my deck. Um, I don't think this is better than Diminishing Returns because it doesn't have to fill a role in my deck. <laughs> if you could build a deck around that, I mean, and therefore doesn't appear in top eights right now. I mean, Diminishing Returns is better than this in my sideboard for one very important reason. There's a very narrow window for playing Diminishing Returns in my Burning Long deck. It's the window basically where it's early enough in the game where Yawgmoth's Will isn't going to be either good or win the game, um, but um, it's late enough that you have the resources to cast a Diminishing Return. So it's basically like turn two or three space. And in that context, you and your opponent usually have diminished hand sizes such that a windfall effect is going to be much less good. Thank you. That's what I was trying to drive at. Is it within that space I just described? Right. Windfall is, is not very good. Well, well ironically, 
Recall sometimes gets better in later game, late game, for a number of reasons. I mean, one is that if you Hercules recall your opponent in Windfall, that's pretty good. Another thing is that if you're like bargaining or using Gristlebrand or you're, um, then Windfall can actually be ridiculously good. The other thing is though, is if you play a draw seven, like a mid game draw seven, and you Windfall within it, your opponent has a new hand because of you, so the Windfall gets better. So Windfall is like really good on turn one or two, but like, I'm just generalizing here, not very good on turn three or four, but it gets better after that. There, there are other weird situations. Like in uh, the last tournament I played in, my um, I was watching David Ochoa play Frankie Motz. I think his name is Motz, and Frankie had just mystical tutored for ancestral recall, drew it, and passed the turn because he wanted to leave counter magic up. And uh, David drew windfall, and so it was this interesting moment when David put windfall on the stack, knew his opponent was debating whether to play the ancestral in order to draw a counter, or you know, to counter the windfall, but also knew that if he didn't draw the counter, wasn't able to counter the windfall, then David would draw three more cards as a result. So it's it, it's it's useful in that in narrow situations like that as well. If you had a deck that had basically five windfalls, plus Wheel of Fortune maybe, plus Jar, so effectively multiple windfalls, and you could thereby reliably have access to the windfall effect, it seems to me you could abuse that by ramping up the things that lead to those scenarios, like Hercules Recall and other things. And you could end up with basically a new kind of modern draw seven deck that abuses the fact that we specifically have several windfalls now. Right. So this card, I mean, it's it's hard to build a deck around four diminishing returns because it <laughs> it's inherently dissynergistic. It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to you know, I my old draw seven deck from two thousand four. You can find it in the Star City Games archive. I think it has like two tendrils main deck. There were like non-trivial number of games where you would actually exile two. Right. It's not like you would be playing two diminishing turns a game. Usually, you interface it with other draw sevens. So this this does allow open the the at least the door to building a more dedicated draw seven deck. I think. Um, <clears throat> From a design perspective or a deck construction perspective, there are a couple things that this card maybe opens up. One is building a deck with four of these that is basically a draw seven deck. Then we can explore and discuss that. The second, and where, where you want to do that, the second is building a deck that uses this, maybe is less heavy on draw sevens, but emphasizes Cypher more. And there's also a third possibility that hybridizes both. I think they're, I think they're worth discussing. <clears throat> I think there's a lot of open space there, and I think some clever deck builders will come up with some things that, well, that will just be interesting and will perform in, in a new and interesting ways sometimes. It's the first time since Alliances they put, they printed a draw seven that costs four unconditionally, right? right? Well, dr- the part about that that's maybe not 100% true is the draw seven part. In formats right. other than Vintage, this card will frequently not be a draw seven, which means it's it has limited applications from a combo standpoint in those formats. It has other applications, of course, filling the graveyard, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I guess draw draw seven is a little bit of a term of art. Sure, windfall doesn't actually draw seven necessarily, but right, yeah, that's that's true. It's, this is a, this is an interesting card. Um, I think um, I think we should maybe which one which way do you want to go first? Like talk about draw seven deck. I think we should talk about draw sevens first, and then move on to talking about cipher more. I think the first question though is what are you what is the strategic objective? This card can generate potentially a good amount of, of card advantage. What is it you're trying to accomplish? Almost all draw seven decks are basically storm decks. Since Scourge, you know, use draw sevens to generate storm. I think that's even true in Legacy. I mean, you use time spiral on the high tide deck to reach a critical mass of storm, right? So you can storm them naturally. Brain free. Naturally. In vintage it's it's tendrils and, and the epic storm in legacy it's tendrils as well. 
I think I think if you if I think there may be some better opportunities though. You might remember what was the name of that deck? Steel City Vault. Steel City Vault. Sure, it was a it was a basically a Grixis control style deck that also included some draw sevens in the form of Wheel of Fortune. And so I don't remember what year this was. It'd be worth looking up this deck. But Brian DeMars created a deck, really surprising in a tournament. I Brian, you know, was known for playing Control Slaver, where he showed up with a deck with a bunch of draw sevens, like Wheel and Twister and Windfall. And this was late 2009. Late 2009, and he played with some Goblin Welders, and the whole objective is to play these draw sevens to basically churn through your deck as quickly as possible to assemble Key Vault. And the deck actually saw some success. Like, there were some major tournaments that had performed pretty well with it. This might be a very interesting home for something like that. Um, you know, it's, it's it's kind of like, the question is, is it better than, like, you just using Transmute Artifact or something? Mm-hmm. But I, I think it might be. I mean, you really can do some amazing things. If you could interface this in, like, a welder control deck, it could be potentially very good. And turns out Brian was using Transmute Artifact in that deck as well, in addition to things like Gifts Ungiven. So he really had multiple, multiple ways to sink a key artifact into his graveyard. Yeah, that is definitely a, a and, and I think that actually takes us to the second second point, which is that the, the second discussion around this, which is Cypher. I mean, a Goblin Welder is, is a totally legitimate place to put this card. Yes, absolutely. If your game plan involves playing an early welder and then playing a draw seven or whispering madness of sorts to get access to artifacts in the graveyard, you may not right. you may not always succeed in that on the first try, even with a high density. So But you don't need to on the first try because if you play turn one goblin welder, turn two whispering madness, you get to whispering madness again by attacking the welder. <laughs> That's my point exactly, is that it has an inherent it has some inherent resiliency built in. Because of Cipher, and I imagine in the Steel, the original Steel City Vault list, there were only two Goblin Welders, so that's going to be a pretty obscure scenario. Until well, there's no reason, there's no reason you couldn't play three or four. No, that's what I'm saying. Well, unless or until you actually build the deck around Whispering Madness more dedicatedly by putting in some more creatures, I'm sure you'd start with increasing the number of welders. But there could be plenty of other synergistic creatures that would help. We've talked about Bob in a number of contexts. There's no reason why Bob can't exist in a deck like this to draw cards and facilitate Cipher, Snapcaster Mage, right. etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Right, and you could in in also I like the idea of having hybridized strategies, so you could play with the tendrils in the deck and the time bolt. Sure. So the bob would bob would would facilitate both potentially. You just go to whichever is the path of least resistance. That could be a potentially actually very good deck, especially if you could put some Hercules recalls in there as you know against workshops. Fire off Hercules recall, Whispering Madness, draw a ton of cards. Yeah, that Heck, that could potentially you know, really what I mean. Existing decks use Hercules recall very commonly. No deck, well, aside from perhaps burning long today, but no deck really has a play that involves Hercules Recall and then getting a, a serious blowout on your opponent because of it. They're just relying yeah. on Hercules Recall being good enough, which it usually is. So this this sort of segs into another discussion of building around this. One question that I, I've been thinking about is, why would you play this instead of Raw Sevens? I think the answer to that question has to has to be because this is better than Draw 7. And why would this be better than Draw 7? Well, be, one possible answer is because you could draw more than 7 cards. Mm-hmm. So if you can bounce a, a permanence to the opponent's hand, you could potentially draw more than 7 cards. So if you could play thing, things like Repeal or Hercules Recall, you could really get card adva- even more card advantage out of this. There because are. its resolution would be wipe, essentially discarding cards that were once in use from the opponent's side. 
Another potentially really synergistic card with this that I've been thinking about is Mystic Remora, because Mystic Remora does two things. First, it disincentivizes your opponent from playing cards, which inherently makes Windfall better. Mm-hmm. So you could just put Mystic Remora into play as long as you want, pay for as long as you want. The turn you want it to go away, when your opponent has like a seven-card hand... Mm-hmm. <laughs> You let it go away, and you cast this spell, and it's a giant blowout. Yeah, puts your opponent into a real Gordian knot if they know they know both. Yeah, they know both sides. They can't win, basically. I think that this card is very, very interesting. I mean, the fact that there's no, I mean, it, it's like a, such a throwback to you know the mid '90s in terms of the design space that it opens up, and yet we have all of these effects that can synergize with it. There are viable strategic ends with tendrils and time vault. There's a, a good card to put it on, which is Goblin Welder. At the same time, there are these effects like Repeal and Mystic Remora and Chain of Vapor and Hercules that could also make it pretty good. Maybe you can fit them all together and you have a really powerful new deck. I think this highlights something that is unique to Vintage. This card would be far less interesting to us if it were restricted already. Yes. We would be debating, you know, would you maybe have it in the main deck of Long? Would you maybe have it in the side? It would be a much more narrow debate. And, and that's essentially the situation that most players encounter Vintage today. All the draw, good draw sevens are restricted. Right. So. And so this will be, as you said, the first time in a long time, and it's much more interesting from that standpoint. It seems like a tautology to say, hey, this is more interesting because you can play with four of them, but it's it's a thing that's unique to Vintage. It's the, the only yep. format where you're going to have that kind of dichotomy, and the simple fact is, is we don't get too many cards that cause us to create new decks, really. We get lots yep. of cards that have incremental ads, lots of cards yep. that slot in maybe here in a sideboard like Abrupt Decay and things like that, but this could legitimately create a new family of combo deck. Right, just like just, I think just the one we outlined right there. Yeah. Put some Ancient Tombs in the main deck, and I think you're just about ready. That's very <laughs> could be very interesting. And also, I am of the opinion there's room for a version of a deck like this that actually has many more creatures in it. We haven't scoured the creature pool per se, but creatures that are more structural to the function of the deck and Such as. and facilitate the win more. Well, well, the one thing I think we should be very clear of is that, and this is important, is that you can't put you can't cipher this onto a Xanid Swarm, which is probably <laughs> the most natural. I mean, that's the most natural home. Yeah, field, right? if Xanid Swarm had a one power, this would be the place you would want to put that cipher. But there right. is, well, and you're right, there's no card like Xanid Swarm per se. There's nothing as efficient and disruptive as that. It also has a, a power to to work with for Cypher. But I'm just saying there has to be something. And there may be many creatures, or a handful of creatures at least, that we've dismissed in the past because they didn't do enough. But for some reason, they're very synergistic with Cypher. Who knows, mm-hmm. maybe creatures with haste, maybe things that we don't value in Vintage right now, maybe Basking Rootwalla because it's free to cast off of this. Mm-hmm. So Basking Rootwalla, for example, if it's in your hand, gives you a Cypher target once your Whispering Madness resolves. There could be a number of examples. Yeah, I mean, so I guess the question is, will this actually see play? I feel almost certain that it will. And it's just a question of degree in my mind. I think people will slot it into as a one of maybe in some decks because they're used to putting one yep. draw seven of of a sort. And I think that someone I, will come up with one, maybe two different four of Whispering Madness decks that we'll be talking about in the future. So that all sounds reasonable. I mean, I think on the one hand, this is the deck that we just outlined seems eminently viable and interesting. The problem is that I feel like vintage players, first of all, don't innovate <laughs> to the extent that they should. And secondly, they don't take risks to the extent that they should. So I mean, but to use, I think it's quite safe. So I'm not sure. 
Meanwhile, I think that, you know, it would take someone to actually go out and do well with a deck like this before people would start playing it. And it would have to be repeated performances. Before it catches so, on, sure. But to use your metric from earlier in the show, this is the sort of card that vintage players are attracted to. Are they? I don't know. I actually think that vintage combo has been down for so long in vintage that people don't really know what to make of it. Mm. I think it would be one thing if you said that five years ago, six years ago, but I don't know now these days. I mean, well, what percentage? Recent what success notwithstanding. What percentage of the vintage players playing vintage today were playing vintage five years ago? So take a guess. Oh, jeez, I, I would actually say that it's pretty high. I would say it's more than half. I would say it's probably around fifty percent. And if that being the case, that means fifty percent of the players have never played with draw seven. <laughs> until, until recently, which means they have no familiarity with it, no context for it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it's, it's just the players I'm just, thinking of though are the sort that are in the latter half. Though they're the sort that, but they're not, they don't even play draw seven. They're not going to build a new draw seven deck. Very, very tiny. They play. I just think it's a very tiny number. I, I think that something like a revised Steel City Vault is, would be a great place for this. But I think we'll just have to wait and see. Th- I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go on board saying in the next six months I expect to see two of these in top eight. Really? Yeah. Well, I think sorry, there, not six months until our next set. Until our next set, sure. I think that there are enough players who are energized just at the notion of playing with Dark Ritual that you're going to have more energy behind development of decks like this, including this card. Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I definitely expect more than two appearances. I'm going to say, and I'm not just going to go with three here, Good. but I think I think five. All right. I feel like this card will be tested, will be embraced, and some people will show some success with it. I'm not yet ready to say it's going to become a, a pillar of the metagame per se. It remains to be seen whether or not you can even build a better combo deck than long. Would but, you be shocked if there were none in top eights, if the answer is zero? Hmm. I would be pretty surprised, yeah. Okay. I think this is the most vintage powerful card in this set. Oh, that brings us to our last set of cards. (laughs) Well, maybe, maybe. Last but not least, and for the first time in any of our set reviews, we have to review two cards at once. Those cards are Balustrade Spy and Undercity Informer, and you'll see why if you read them. Balustrade Spy says three black creature vampire rogue flying when balustrade spy enters the battlefield target player reveals cards from the top of his or her library until he or she reveals a land card then puts those cards into his or her graveyard two three undercity informer has a very similar effect two black creature human rogue one comma sacrifice a creature target player reveals cards from the top of his or her library until he or she reveals a land card then puts those cards into his or her graveyard two three we have almost the same effect text coming on a triggered ability versus an activated ability from two creatures that are almost identical in casting cost so we have <laughs> and have the same power and, and have the same power and toughness yeah so if you count under cities and former casting cost as including the one mana to sacrifice itself then you basically have two four mana creatures that do exactly the same thing so you have eight of them at your disposal in your deck and if your deck has no lands in it, then both of these creatures read 3B, put your library into your graveyard. Or 2B. Yeah, exactly, 3B. They yeah. both. So, so for our um, more recent and long-time listeners, or older Magic players and more recent Magic players, these cards compare pretty favorably to an older card named Hermit Druid. Mm-hmm. And the difference, of course, is that Hermit Druid searches for a basic land, whereas this reveals a land. 
But if you don't play any land, all three cards mill your library, entire library. So the whole purpose of both cards is to mill your entire library, either as an activated ability or a triggered ability, right? Yep, thereby gaining access to whatever discrete combination of cards becomes active when it hits your library or graveyard from your library. Right. So it's essentially a one-card way to mill your entire library. It should be mentioned, for comparison, that Hermadruid is banned in Legacy, mm-hmm. which shows you the power level of these cards at the outset. Um, that is no small thing, uh, that a card be banned in Legacy. Um, and these are potentially better than Hermadruid for a number of reasons. So why don't we, before discussing deck lists, why don't we just focus on the comparisons to Hermadruid? So Hermadruid costs one green and it has an activated ability that requires tapping to perform the effect of milling until you hit a basic land or effectively milling your li- library into your graveyard, which means Hermit Druid, all things being equal, comes down sooner but has to wait a turn. Yep. That's one of the potential benefits that you alluded to is the fact that both of these new creatures become and have their effect immediately upon entering play. Mm-hmm. So each a deck that abused these creatures can potentially go from having no board presence to winning the game and also is not affected by things that would normally hinder a creature from sitting around for one turn. Any kind of creature removal is ineffectual against these two cards in ways that it's very effective against Hermit Druid. In a way, and when it comes to legacy terms where creature removal is common, these two are much worse than Hermit Druid. And by worse, I mean worse for the format. Right, I think that these cards compare very favorably with Hermit Druid. First of all, they're in a more natural color. For combo decks. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think that the not having to wait a turn thing is actually huge. Definitely. Uh, uh, you know, for a deck like Belcher, which he's probably immediately compared to, you don't want to give your opponent a turn to do anything. So I I think this card is um, these cards are are really potentially broken in eternal formats because experience has shown with Belcher and decks like that that you can build basically a no-land deck. There are sufficient mana accelerants in both Legacy and Vintage to, to populate a 60-card library with plenty of mana and mana acceleration and no land, and more than enough to cast this card, which makes these cards basically, I mean, essentially they're like Belcher without having to activate it. The difference is that you rely on the graveyard, so you need to have disruption and ways to remove cards like Leyline of the Void. Yet, if there's one thing we learned over you know five years of Dredge now, it's a that can be done. It can. And it has been in Legacy. Legacy Dredge is, has really called attention to the fact that people are underprepared to fight graveyards. People yep. are not, per se, underprepared in Vintage, but as you said, Dredge still gets it done. Yes. So I think in terms of, I, I think these cards are, um, it almost makes the fact that Hermit is banned look funny. <laughs> because you might as well just ban on Hermit, unban, right? Well, I don't think that Wizards would reach that same conclusion, but your point is well made. It seems far more likely, of course, that these one or both of these cards will get banned, sadly. But time will tell. If these do not dominate the tournament scene, then the answer to your question becomes a lot different. If these are allowed to exist as a four of slash eight of, and the deck is allowed to exist, and it does not cause a problem in Legacy, then yeah. a very reasonable case can be made for simply unbanning Hermit Druid because it, there's almost no way that it would be better than these. Well, I'd like to talk about um, how we build the, this deck, and I'd like to talk about potential win conditions. And we're talking about Vintage? 
Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about both, but primarily Vintage. I'd like to start either with the win conditions or the mana. Where do you want to start? I say we start with the mana then. Okay, the mana. So one of the things this has an advantage over Belcher in both formats is that Dark Ritual is singular and unique, and it's the only mana accelerant that's unrestricted that generate that nets you two mana at one casting cost or less. Mm-hmm. I guess the exception is Lion's Eye Diamond and Legacy. But um, so... Um, in Vintage, Dark Ritual is very important, and yet Dark Ritual doesn't even see a lot of play in the in Vintage Belcher because Vintage Belcher decks are primarily red and green. This deck would be would be able to use all the rituals. So you know, let's just put all the mana on the table. I'm not saying we're going to use all these. From Mox is unrestricted. Mox Opal is unrestricted. Dark Ritual, Cabal Ritual, Elvish Spirit Guide, Simeon Spirit Guide, Pact of, Pact of the um, the Green Pact defines Elvish Spirit Guide. Um, those are all uh, unrestricted mana acceleration sources that you could probably use some or most of in a deck like this. Mm-hmm. And you probably would. You probably would use some or most of those. I mean, the rituals obviously are just incredible here. Chromox, I mean, so in some sense it looks a little bit like uh, the speed um, and nauseum decks, but it's cheaper because you only need, <laughs> you only need four mana instead of five before you win. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so, um, and then you get to use, of course, all the restricted mana acceleration, like, uh, you know, all the moxen to lotus petal to, uh, um, and you probably would use the lion, the single lion's eye diamond. Why not? Well, you definitely would because it is heavily applicable when you happen to draw Undercity Informer. Right, exactly. Because Undercity Informer mm-hmm. has an additional mm-hmm. benefit relative to Lion's Eye Diamond in that it really does only cost three and then needs to be activated for one. So Legacy is kind of a weird situation because you have advantages over Vintage with this deck, this deck and Disadvantage. Mm-hmm. You have the advantage of having a bunch of these cards unrestricted. So you can use four Lion's Eye Diamond, you can use four Lotus Petals, but you don't get the Soul Ring Mana Crypt and the other alpha acceleration. So realistically, though, Lion's Eye Diamond is not maximized in this deck. The four no, of but I would still, still run I would, in the Legacy version. I would almost certainly run Infernal Tutor and Lion's Eye Diamond just because it's so good. Mm-hmm. In the Vintage version, you're going to run the one of anyway, probably. Naturally. So I think we have a good sense of what kind of mana you would use. In terms of the win conditions, there are some discrete and different packages you get to choose from. One one package is the Lab Man, Angel, and Azami package, which is the one that's used in Legacy Breakfast right now. Um, and that, you know hinge, that pack- and that hinges upon Narcomibus and Dread Return, right? Right. So, um, yes. Yeah. So what you do is you dread your whole library, or mill your whole library. <laughs> Any Narcomoebas that you have that are milled this way come into play. Right. It's pretty much, well, no, it's not the same as Four Horsemen, but as you said, it has the same setup. Right. Which you then use to what? You animate the angel, which brings in the humans, which means you have Laboratory Maniac and Azami in play and no library, at which point you can tap Azami to draw a card and win the game. Exactly. Um, the other, there are some, that's a three-card win package. Well, actually, it's a seven-card win package, assuming you're only running three Narcomoebas and one Dread Return. Right. The alternative is you could use Sutured Ghoul and Dragon's Breath, which was the original thing with Hermit Dru- with the last version of Hermit Druid. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one less card. So the, the the one option is go to the Labman Maniac route. Another is Sutured Ghoul with all the Hermit Druids and the new sorry the new Hermit Druids and with the Spirit God, you'll have more than enough power and, to uh, to win the game. And that win package should be one card smaller than the three creatures we mentioned before, since it would just be right, Sutri Ghoul and Dragon Breath. Exactly. Gotcha. Um, so, I mean, the question is, are there other win condition packages? I'm not really, I can't really think of any at the moment, but those both of those seem pretty good. It seems pretty clear that you are going to have a potential issue with drawing one of your 
win condition cards. Well, there is a very easy route around that. I mean, you're you're familiar with the rules of seven and nine. <laughs> oh, oh, and we, there's one other man excellent we didn't mention, which is you could also use um, calling the calling the weak as a uh, win condition with some of these creatures. I see. Um, but but one other thing that I didn't mention is we could use you could use four living wish as a tutor, which you might recall Michael Simister used with Belcher and Vintage way back when. Oh yes. So if you cut one of the guys from the main deck and put one of these hermit druids in the sideboard, and you used four living wish with a bunch of spirit guides, tinder walls, or whatever, you could probably get there as well. It probably wouldn't take that much off your speed. In fact, I think if you have as cam- compact as possible a win condition, let's say three Narcomibas, one Dread Return, one Sutured Ghoul, one Dragon Breath. That's six. Mm-hmm. What will happen if you fan open your your opening hand and it has an Archimeba in it? Well, how will the deck be constructed to address the scenario? Because inherently, a card in hand is as good as nothing. Well, what happens if you draw one of Sutured Ghoul, Dragon's Breath, or or Dread Return? Do you simply need to mulligan that hand? You know, there's a number of ways of dealing with that. One is you could put a Cabal Therapy in the graveyard, so you could Cabal Therapy yourself. Yes, that will be effective if you have Balustrade Spy, but not under City Informer. I know we're narrowing in. No, for example, for example, suppose you have four Narcomibas, but you draw the Dragon's Breath at the Suture Ghoul. Well, you use the first Narcomiba to therapy yourself. Oh, yes. I see your point exactly. I was not calculating the fourth Narcomiba. Which is, you can put a bridge from below in the deck as well. That seems to be not immediately lethal then, correct? If you have bridge from below, you will get triggers. No, the, bridge, yeah, the bridge from below is simply is, is simply a disruptive package, so that you can use multiple cobalt therapies out of your graveyard when the to just I have see. plenty of tokens. Yeah, I see. You'd only need one since you empty your entire library immediately. Then you could cast every cobalt therapy that was in your graveyard. Yes. Exactly. Gotcha. This deck could also play four pact of negation. Well, well, let's talk to them that the traditional Belcher list has no disruptive elements in its main deck. It is well, the traditional Belcher list also has is much more mana intensive. You have to have seven mana. I know, but I'm talking specifically about disruption. Would you build sure. this with no disruption in the main and then board into it? No, no, I would play disruption. I think the 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 first thing that comes to mind when someone looks at a deck like this is is this a glass cannon? Is this does this lose to a um, extra pay or a, a single force of will? And I think you've got to build it so it doesn't. I think you've got to build it so it's fast enough that it has a high turn one win percentage, but that you also need to build in some disruption and then you go more disruptive post board agreed i mean mean, even if your opponent is able to counter one of the hermit druids you we want to build it so if you activate a hermit druid you win no matter what and then you also want to build it so that you know if even if they're able to counter one you can probably play another pretty soon which is probably not far off from the case right no i I agree that when you're only paying four mana or sometimes even three mana for the informer then the odds of you being able to refill on subsequent turns are very high yeah yes in fact if you exciting thing from if you had an opening that was something akin to lotus petal ritual undercity informer with a mox and your opponent forces the undercity informer you are going to have to rebuild but because of the nature of the deck it won't take you more than a turn or two to have access to another four mana assuming you can find the spy also in vintage you're going to have a number of fixing cards that will help you get there like the demonic and vampiric tutors like Yogmoth's yes. will if you want to try and yes. keep that in. It, by the way, if you play with Living Living Wish, it also makes Lions on Admin better. Oh, definitely. So, Absolutely. This deck is so exciting, I can hardly describe it. Um, there's also, isn't there a, a Ley Line that makes creatures you play uncounterable? Yes, the Ley Line, the green Ley Line, and I forget the, what the prefix is. It. I'll, I'll find it just now. 
Leyline of Life Force says creature spells can't be countered. That's pretty dangerous. <laughs> that fights through force of will pretty effectively. <laughs> of course, that's only fighting your opponent on one uh, axis of which they will fight you. You still are definitely weak in that, even with that card in play, you're still definitely weak to things like surgical extraction, extra etc., etc. But that's the thing. For, I mean, they basically, um, you might want multiple packages at once, because if your opponent, um, like, that's the thing. I guess if you mill your entire library before you're able to cobalt therapy, they extract, or they extirpate the laboratory maniac, you're, you're in deep doo-doo unless you also have the other package in there. Well, which then takes up a lot more, a lot more space. Actually, a smart opponent, regardless of how many packages you have, would extirpate your narcomebas. That's a good. Thereby point. cutting you off from any dread return related package. Yes, it's pretty tricky to come up with an alternate win condition in this deck that doesn't rely on narcomebas because they're so attractive in the fact that they're mana, f- they're free from a mana perspective. They're completely reliable. If they're in your library, they're going to end up in play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. One other thing, though, I just rem- I just realized is that um, if you're using Summoner's Pack, you probably also want a single Wild Cantor. Sure, to filter mana. To shift, yeah, shift mana. Yeah, absolutely. You could also build the deck such that it relies on other effects coming out of the graveyard. Flashback, for example. You, yeah, we already mentioned Cabal Therapy. Well, no, sense. I mean such that your win condition involves paying additional mana. So, like Deep, deep Analysis or something? Something. I, sorry, I can't come up with a great example right now, but playing additional spells out of your graveyard is another opportunity. Something like... Um, Thinking, thinking, thinking. Sorry. Something like Past in Flames, for example, which you Mm -hmm. have access to from your graveyard and then instantly becomes a kill in in and of itself. Now, that requires you to invest another five mana, of course, so it's not nearly as attractive. And, unfortunately, it's also susceptible to the same graveyard removal that other things are. Although I will tell you that if you have access to all nine mana at once, Past in Flames mm-hmm. is actually a better win condition than any of the others we listed. But that's only if you have access to nine mana. I think it's also worth noting that this deck can include Goblin Charbelcher very easily. Sure. To have the secondary win condition that comes entirely out of your hand and isn't affected by graveyard removal. And any deck that's designed to play as many rituals as we're talking about and cast four mana spells on turns one and two is frequently going to have access to seven mana necessary to win the game on turns one or two. Yep. Yep. So in my opinion, part of the disruption, quote unquote, of this deck is the diverse diversification of threats. And if you if you have a combo deck that has twelve different single card win conditions in it, your reliance on tutors and other things to set up your draws is is just almost laughable. You, you <laughs> because put, you're so consistent. Yeah, exactly. You put those 12 cards in there and you put in a half dozen cards off the restricted list and the deck is going to be yeah. very reliable. Well, it's weird. So let's just do a comparison of Legacy to Vintage. I mean, Belcher actually puts up Star City Games top eight appearances in, in Legacy and is, doesn't really do that in Vintage. Right. Vintage Vintage is absolutely dominated by Force of Will, which makes Belcher a lot harder. I think, though, that this deck has some advantages in Vintage, not beyond the... I mean, the presence of all of the original Artifact Acceleration Mox Jet, Black Lotus, Mox Emerald, Mox Pearl, Mox Ruby, Mox Sapphire, Mana Crypt, Mana Vault, etc. Those actually make Mox Opal a viable play in Vintage, and probably not in Legacy, right? All you have is four Lotus Petal, four Lines on and four Chrome Mox. So I think I think this deck, I mean, can just be real, fairly consistent. You know, like they counter your first one, you can just force through the next one. You know, because you have Chrome Mox, a Mox Opal, and a Mox in play. You know, I agree completely. You're that's probably how the mana base would start in a deck like this, and it does mean that your mana yeah. is not just one shot. 
you will actually have a reduced reliance on one-shot effects in Vintage than you would in Legacy. So do we have a consensus? Do you think the Maniac build is better or the Suture Ghoul is better? I think the Maniac build is actually better. And Man, you can build a list. Go ahead. And, and that's Go because ahead. it doesn't rely on creature combat. So the Maniac build, I, I agree, is probably better. It's a slightly larger package, so you have to have Lab Man, Angel Azami. That's three, four Narcomoebas. That's seven. Probably four Narcomoebas. That's seven. A Dread Return, that's eight. So that's an eight-card package, right? Mm-hmm. Not, in, not counting not counting Cabal Therapies or a Bridge from Below, which you probably want in there. If you have a Bridge from Below, maybe you can get away with just three Narcomoebas. Anyway, it's about a ten-card package at minimum, right? Let's just let's just agree to that. Right. So the best mana is obviously going to be the original Artifact Acceleration and Dark Ritual, right? Right. So that's Black Lotus, Mana Vault, Mana Crypt, Soul Ring, um, Lotus Petal, Five Moxen, that's 10. Lion's Eye Diamond. Lion's Eye Diamond, that's 11. So you have 11 Artifact Accelerants, plus four Dark Ritual, that's 15 cards. Did, I think did you get o- Opals and Chromes yet? Yeah, I would have at least two Opals and at least three Chrome, mm-hmm. but probably four Chrome and maybe even three Opal. I don't know, two or three Opals probably, right? Agreed. So that brings us, let's say we go four Chrome and two Opal. That takes us to 19, 20, 21. Um, then we probably want four Cabal Ritual, because that's going to get us that last last extra mana. That's 25 mana sources. And that is a total of 35 cards so far. Um, then we probably want the Spirit Guides, right? Which ones, though? Is there a difference? Are you going to have any red or green spells? I don't think well, so. The, yeah, the red one, oh, the, the gr- green one is better because you get to use the pack to, uh, if you want the green pack. Except that there's no reason to play with the pact if you're only ever going to get a spirit guide with it. You might as well just play the red spirit guide. No, that's not true because if you play with like say four elvish spirit guides and one wild cantor, you, you could use the four packs for sure. I see. The wild cantor still casts off of all the same stuff regardless of whether or not you're using a green or a red spirit guide. Right. You, but it's found with the green with the green one. I got gotcha. you. Green pack. I got gotcha. you. No, you're right. It's found with that. So if so, you opened up a hand that had a pact and three spirit guides and an off-color mox, like a pearl, you could still go off with that hand because you could go get the Cantor. You'd need an extra mana. You'd need five mana instead of four. Yeah. But if you I'm beginning five to think mana that only involved spirit I'm guides. That, I almost think that you want more sum, more summoners pack than other spirit guide. It's ironic, <laughs> but I think you're right. If you're going for a, if you're going for a hard turn one kill. That's far more glass cannon, though. Yeah, far more glass cannon. You'd have to figure out the balance, but just from the math we've already done based on the deck like this, I mean, what, we haven't even filled sorry, up to 40 cards. That, we're around 40 cards. Say that last bit again. Based on the math we've done... There's plenty of space. Yes, I agree. And you're going to be playing uh, Ancestral, Vamp, Demonic, at least... Maybe not even vamp though. Maybe you're just you're probably you're you're certainly playing demonic tutor. Yeah. You're, um. You have enough sources of blue, I think, to justify ancestral. It's borderline. Okay. It's borderline, but I think you do. You probably want to play with the necropotence, don't you? Is that a problem? Because when you discard, you have to RFG that, or exile. That would be a, a moderate problem. One one issue is whether you, so well, let's just lay the issues on the table. Wouldn't be allowed to first issue any of your combo pieces. First issue is the first issue is the package. Second issue is how much disruption you run. Third issue is whether you run card run draw sevens you could run all kinds of disruption you could play with pack negation and you could play with unmask you could play with duress's main deck you know you could play all sorts of things right you can play pyroblast and simian spirit guide you could play whispering madness times four (laughs) (laughs) right you're not you could yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of questions. I guess the question is, you just have to probably test the configuration that, ma- that sort of maxes out on speed without 
but minimizes your glass cannon-ness. Agreed. And I obviously tuning would be in order, and the fact that yeah. you're fighting against workshops a lot of the time in this metagame is not to be underappreciated. Yeah, I'm not sure how you'd combat workshops, but... It's very tough, but it might rely on the spirit guides, ironically. We, we have known yep. from past examples that spirit guides are a fantastic way to fight Chalice and Lodestone Golem. So Unfortunately, Chalice at zero stops Summoner's Pact. Well, and that might be part of the reason why you don't go with Summoner's Pact. Maybe yeah. just roll up on the eight spirit guides with one Summoner's Pact or two. But this, this sideboard has like four Ancient Tombs and four City of Traders. No, you can't actually do that because no. you can't hit a land. You can't do that with yeah. this deck. I think that yeah, this, I think that in order to beat workshops, it's pretty clear to me that your sideboard has to get you up to if you're not already up to eight spirit guides, and then it has to have one of a handful of efficient artif- anti artifacts. You might actually need, might actually need Metamorphose in this deck. Why is that? Well, that might be the card that gets you from some of these that fixes these colors even better. I see, and we haven't talked about free cyclers either, such as Gataxian Probe or or Street Wraith. And Gataxian Probe is highly functional with Cobble Therapy. Yep. And Vibe Man. Oh, yes, good point. Good point. You could actually conceivably end up in a scenario where you activate your Dread Return, but your opponent is planning to remove the Lab Man in response to your draw somehow, mm-hmm. such that you could kick off that chain with a Gitaxian Probe and have access to Instant Speed Draw in response. That will be pretty rare, but not out of the question, especially with how common Lightning Bolt is in the format. Right. There may be several... Grixis control players in game one that are counting on disrupting you with a lightning bolt if you're running the lab <laughs> package. Right, exactly. It's relevant, of course. It's worth noting that if you have the Labmatorum Maniac Azami combo in play, you do actually have two draws at your disposal at instant speed. So the relevance of probing to start that chain is probably pretty low. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There's also another solution to drawing some of the combo parts, and that's Phantasmagorian, which you which you can use to get the bad cards out of your hand. I think that's a good point and one that we should probably help our listening audience with since Phantasmagorian sees very little play. <laughs> Laughably little play. Phantasmagorian is an enormous 7 casting cost 6-6 six, six black horror and it has the text, when you cast Phantasmagorian, any player may discard three cards if a player does counter Phantasmagorian. Discard three cards, colon, return Phantasmagorian from your graveyard to your hand. The last ability being the relevant one in this context, if you have some or all of your combo pieces in hand, you can mill your graveyard and discard three cards to return Phantasmagorian, thereby putting the things you needed into your graveyard. That's assuming, of course, that you still had three cards in hand, which is not always going to be the case, of course, but still relevant. Mm-hmm. One card that, if you could figure out a different package, you, it would be uh, Serum Powder is worth at least considering. Maybe not as a four of, but maybe, you know, like as a one or two of. Yes, you would have to come up with a different approach to the deck, I think, from the ground up yep. to make that work, but it would help with the consistency a great deal. That did occur to me at some point when I was brainstorming these decks, and I somewhat dismissed it. But I think a clever deck builder could take another approach that has a much more robust win condition. Past in Flames, for example, would not would be able to play with Serum Powder. Mm-hmm. Steve, I feel like we've elucidated a number of possibilities for this deck. But as it it is our show to predict performances, I think we need to zero in on our target then. 
going back to Whispering Madness, for example, you said that vintage players don't innovate as much as they should or could. Do you think mm-hmm. this deck is going to attract players to innovate, maybe more so than Whispering Madness even? This is a really esoteric combo deck. When Belcher first came out, people didn't pick it up. It wasn't until like years later that people turned to Belcher as like a fun fringe deck. I don't know. I mean, it depends if people like Nat Moe's and want to give this a shot. <laughs> you know, and that's what it's going to depend on. I hope so. I hope people try this. I mean, I think a deck like this is useful for a number of reasons. It really, like I said on the, on the Mana Drain, when this was spoiled, I said this will push the boundaries of, of the format's resilience to combo. You know, I mean, I think it's definitely compatible, but it would be just interesting to see how. I think that people who like Belcher will be attracted to this, and there's not an insignificant number of them. Belcher made top eight, according to Morphling.D, once in October and twice in December. There are players that like that deck and are attracted to it. Well, good. It'll be, it'll be fun to see this showing up in vintage tournaments then. I think so. Of course, that shows us how, how far out of the mainstream we are when we said this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Well, but speaking more to the mainstream, what do you think about Legacy? I mean, I'm not calling you out for a prediction uh, we'll, we'll know very quickly. We'll know very quickly within a couple of weeks of the Star City Game Series. You know, is pretty. Um, we'll, we'll test the limits of this. I think it would be highly ironic. Boy, I'm thinking on a number of levels here. One, it would be highly ironic if this card, combined with Dredge, really pushed Graveyard Hate to the forefront in Legacy. I think with proper Graveyard Hate in Legacy, this deck could be contained, but still would pre- be able to perform at certain tournaments, just like Dredge yeah, I mean, does in Vintage. Graftigger's Cage, Cage hoses this deck. So Surgical Extraction does a number of things do. Cheap, efficient things do hose this yeah. deck. It won't be hard. Yeah. It won't be impossible to fight it, just like Dredge is not unbeatable right. in Vintage. I'm all for decks like this. I love it. But <laughs> the corollary to what I was getting at, though, was I think it's another link in the chain that could possibly make legacy and vintage more similar if there was actually a functioning balustrade spy under city informer deck in both formats <sighs> i think that's fascinating you know i think this deck actually does the opposite i think it shows it highlights how different the formats are no, no, I mean, it, the, the two decks wouldn't look they would look very different yeah. but i just think it's another possibility where you can have archetypes that exist and are relevant in both formats Sure. I think that I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think that's only a good thing for Vintage, especially when we have power coming to Magic Online this year. Anything Mm -hmm. that draws people's attention on a continuum and says Vintage is not this esoteric thing that is an enigma and can't be understood except to critique its speed. Yeah. On the contrary, anything that draws parallels and says, look, Tarmogoyf is a card in Vintage. You can play this strategy. Yeah. Dark Confidant is a card in Vintage. This format yep. is not all about just ritualing out craziness. But obviously this deck, <laughs> if that if it happens to that degree, this deck will unfortunately reinforce certain stereotypes. But if you can tell players, look, that deck exists in Legacy, right? And they say yes. And you say, how do you fight it in Legacy? And they say, well, I've got some cages and and surgical extractions in my sideboard, (laughs) or rest in peace in my my Death and Taxes deck. Well, I say... Or my big Right. And then I say, aren't all those same cards legal and vintage? And they're going to say, hmm, I guess you've got a point. The the point is is drawing those parallels is what helps the vintage in the long run. I think Mindbreak Trap is almost is, is definitely active against this deck. There's no doubt about that. On it, hey, <laughs> hold on though, that that won't always be the case. In vintage, the, in in Legacy, it always will. In vintage, I guess with a Spirit Guide, that's yeah, true. Yeah, that's not in, in vintage, either. The only thing I can think of is the only thing I can think of in, in vintage though basically is Lotus under the Spy. <laughs> <laughs> well, any source of black plus sufficient spirit guides means you can have 
your win on the table. I mean, you can have your graveyard yeah. filled with your library by only casting two spells. Now, that won't be, be the norm, but it's possible. Yeah, it, one, I mean, one other thing I think we both, neither one of us mentioned, because we probably internally dismissed it, is land, land, but the one that one creature can activate twice, because it's got, it's not a triggered ability. Oh, yeah. It's pretty sweet. Undercity, inf- so but, what you're suggesting is that if you got multiple creatures in play, Undercity Informer would still allow you to mill yourself completely, even if you had a land in your library. Yeah. Yes, that's definitely true. But I, I, probably, I probably would not play land grant. <laughs> well, there's. I think you could build the deck that way if you played with land grant and you played with Belcher. Yeah. But I think that's probably less reliable. Yeah. And land grant is inherently easier to disrupt than just accelerating out your cut your combo pieces. All right. So prediction time. Prediction time. All right. You went first. Did you go first last time? Yeah. You went first with the last one, I think. So I'll go first this time. I think this will be attempted, and I think in vintage it will prove to be less reliable than even Belcher is. I think ultimately because uh, because of the fact that it's getting splash hate it's hit by both the speed counter magic and the graveyard hate yeah and i think that's really going to be the thing that does it in not that the arc not that the strategy is flawed but that it's just technically yeah. in the wrong position still yeah. i think someone's going to try it and someone's going to get there so i'm going to say one i'm going to say three yeah that's cool i like it i like it and, and we're saying for both of these so yes. we expect them to see together oh. play together oh yes i'm sorry i i Yes, we are speaking to appearances of Balustrade Spy and Undercity Informer. I don't think there's any chance that they're going to have success separately. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately for these two guys, I think they're tied at the hip. And I say guys because I think that Undercity Informer, I think that's a dude, but Balustrade Spy, maybe not. Hard to tell. Well, Steve, we've come to the end of our Gatecrash review, and for a set that, on paper, doesn't have very many vintage playables, we certainly had plenty to talk about. And, oh, yeah. And who knows? We might have we might has, have as many as five or six cards that have shown up in top eights if all of our high predictions are correct in a couple of months. That would be a that would be a pleasant surprise. I agree. That would be kind of cool. So our question for this week, no surprise, is what Gatecrash card do you think will see the most play in Vintage? With that, thank you for listening to episode 21 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, follow us on Twitter, please, or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you Many Insane Plays. It's not gay protective game! <laughs> <laughs>